Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Join the conversation there. We also invite you to uh, subscribe to our feed. New episodes right to you through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, you can go to nationalreview.com. Find all the episodes there and all the other fine National Review podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share. Please leave reviews as well for the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Ah, well, we came a long way to be here today. So happy 2019 to you. You know, and I got to tell you, if, as I wander around this wreck of a show where people are always talking too loud with the ivory towers and plastic flowers, I guess I just wish it was 2016. And I do wonder. <laughs> yes, I wonder. Is this the way our podcast was meant to be? We will find out as we explore today. Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. And our uh, guest today. He is the host of Ricochet's Young Americans podcast, also a sidekick on the Remnant podcast, right here at National Review with uh, host Jonah Goldberg, and a freelance writer living in Washington, D.C. He's Jack Butler. Jack, thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. Thanks for letting me be here. But, uh, Jeff, could you... Don't don't bring me down with uh, with things like that. I, I just I don't I don't like hearing that kind of thing. Well, listen, I'll, I'll tell you it again later when I get off the floor. Okay. <laughs> door uh, slam. Yes, uh, actual door slam. Uh, Jack, uh, before we get to the band, which everyone should know by now is ELO, but more on them in a second. We uh, we like to explore our guests a little bit, and so we we turn to you, Jack Butler, and ask you what is your political job, political beat. How did you get involved in this whole ecosystem? Well, in sort of a, a convenient coincidence that I'm not just manufacturing uh, for the sake of making myself seem more interesting, both my political background and my musical background kind of started in the same place, namely my dad's car. <laughs> uh, depending on the duration of the drive that we were taking, he would either be listening to talk radio or to one of the various um, uh, CDs that he had in his car. So he had uh, a Wings Greatest Hits, Moody Blues Greatest Hits, um, Abbey Road was on there, and in ELO greatest, ELO's Greatest Hits. And I, we uh, also a Monkey's Greatest Hits, among others. There are, he, had a, he had a large collection in there. But just depending on where we were going and what he had listened to the most recently, we, we cycled through them all. And uh, that was for longer drives, for shorter drives. We were just we would just listen to talk radio, and that's sort of where my political education began. And somehow I finagled that into first getting a job in D.C. and now getting onto a podcast talking about music. So I think that makes me an expert officially. So I've <laughs> I've, I've made it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> officially certified. Now it is uh, the political beats version of the Twitter blue check mark. I, I think you have, which now. I don't have. I, so I don't have that yet. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, you can find Jack on Twitter too at Jack Butler forty eight fifteen. At Jack Butler, 4815. And uh, Jack is with us today as we uh, start this year, 2019, uh, the right way, featuring a, a band that uh, uh, w was formed from, a, from another band called uh, The Move. Uh, this is Electric Light Orchestra. And it's uh, Jeff will tell you in a second, brand new to him, so he even just figured out what the name of the band meant just uh, scant days ago, uh, I believe. Yep. But uh, So Electric Light Orchestra, we begin by turning the floor over to our guest, Jack Butler, to tell us uh, why you love ELO. You already kind of mentioned how you got into them, but tell other people why they should care about this band. 
Well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, it's it's impossible to discuss ELO without also discussing the Beatles, whom you guys did an amazing two-part episode on. Uh, was it last year or the year before? I can't remember. It was last um, summer. Yep. It was right after last I came year. back from uh, paternity leave, actually. Yeah. So with uh, with Charles Cook, the British, conveniently British uh, National Review expert on the Beatles. And I think uh, one of the things to recommend about ELO is that Jeff Lynne, when we're talking about ELO, we're really talking about Jeff Lynne, who's the songwriter, lead vocalist, producer of ELO at its peak. Uh, and Jeff Lynne is one of the best students of the Beatles, I think. He's, you could say, a, perhaps a criticism uh, of ELO is the end of Jeff Lynne is that he's somewhat slavish in his devotion to the Beatles. Uh, but I think that's unfair. I think ultimately he took that Beatles influence and made something new out of it, uh, made something great, made something catchy, took the sort of symphonic rock that the Beatles dabbled in with the help of George Martin and really took it to a, another level. Um, and Lynn himself is not, the, the level that he took it to is not just the level of being able to make hit after hit, which he was also good at. I mean, I hope we get through some, a, a good portion of the hits that Lynn was responsible for in ELO. But I think Lynn is also, as a producer, sort of a master of sonic texture, of atmosphere, and of production. And that, that takes him beyond just being a guy who happens to know what a good melody is. So I think these are, these are some of the things that I hope will come out in our discussion, that ELO is great on the surface as a sort of Beatles tribute band almost and as a hit-making band, but there's also more, a, a little more to them than that. And uh, I hope to uh, go to the mat defending that aspect of ELO in the course of this episode. So imagine being like a Beatles super fan and yet never having heard a single song by Paul McCartney and wings or by John Lennon during his solo career or George Harrison, even more ridiculously. Imagine being really, really into Bill Wyman solo artist. <laughs> See, je suis un rock star, but you've never heard a Rolling Stones song. That is kind of the situation that I have found myself in here. And it's utterly ridiculous because I, up until literally last week when we booked the show with Jack, had never heard a single Electric Light Orchestra song at all, with the one exception of Don't Bring Me Down, which still gets played on the radio every time you go out and you take a drive in the car and you turn to the classic rock station.
found out later that I'd probably also heard Evil Woman at one point or another. But other than that, this band is a massively commercially successful band. All of these albums that we'll be discussing in the late 70s, mid late 70s, made it to like the upper reaches of the charts, the tons of hit singles, 15 of them or more. And I never heard a darn one of them except for that, that one that I just mentioned. <laughs> and the reason that's even more hilarious is because, and this is the part that sounds improbable, I'm an enormous fan of the move. I am an enormous <laughs> fan of Roy Wood in particular. Roy Wood, I mean, I would literally, you know, I wish I could talk to you about the Roy Wood solo album called Boulders and, you know, sing the praises of when grandma plays the banjo. It's a great album. Uh, you've never heard of it probably, but it's wonderful. But for some reason, you know, you know, your, your, your career in consuming music, it just follows along certain paths. And for whatever reason, the tracks that were laid out for me just steered away from ELO forever. And they never got around to getting back to them. So as it happened, I was a little reluctant. You know, I mean, uh, Scott had been saying for a while, like, oh, you know, we have Jack Butler. He'd really love to do Electric Light Orchestra. And I was like, and eh, we'll put it off, you know, because I was just <laughs> like, ah, oh, crap. I got I to gotta learn another discography from front to back. This isn't the first time we've had to do I've had to do this on the show. So like with old 97s, boy, that was a revelation. Or with uh, Cheap Trick is another one that I barely knew anything about. Um, but yeah, I feel really stupid right now because <laughs> as it turns out, hey, they were a pretty great band and they were a pretty great band for me for reasons that might be different than a lot of the, you know, what the rest of you guys are going to say. I love their later pop stuff too. Certainly, you know, there are songs there that I'm just really impressed by. But what I enjoy the most, I guess perhaps predict is the really early prog stuff since I'm a prog rock nut and I'm a big fan of Roy Wood so I guess it's no surprise that I would really enjoy that first ELO album which was literally recorded in the exact same sessions as, as ELO's last album which is just one more reason why how could I know the one group and never hear the other I don't know um, but it's been a really fun discovery for me and I also, though, do see certain flaws. I think that, you know, Lynn's obsession with, uh, you know, these Beatlesque, you know, songs, these movements, you know, the, the, the sort of pop cadences that are very, you know, both Lennon esque and McCartney esque, uh, means that sometimes that's all he cares about and that the songs themselves don't end up meaning that much, uh, or they're just sort of generic love lyrics. And, you know, that works. I mean, there's a song called Telephone Line that's basically just like a love lyric, but it actually, it's so heartfelt. The way it's sung is so impressive that it doesn't feel generic anymore when he's just pleading, just give me a couple more minutes, just let the phone ring, you know? So he can really impress me in that respect. But it's funny because for me, Lynn had always just been this guy who did slick album productions for, you know, over the hill solo artists like George Harrison or, you know, the reunited Threedles and, you know, the traveling Wilburys and stuff like that. And I had never considered him, you know, in the context of his actual solo career, his actual work. And it turns out it's pretty hugely impressive. In a sense, I envy you because, uh, I, this discography has been mostly familiar to me for the better part of a decade now. And I would, it's sort of like this classic thing of you. It's, it's hard in music to uh, get something better than experiencing something you end up really liking for the first time. I mean, even mm -hmm. stuff you end up liking and like re-listening to um, there's something magical about just the first time. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that you got to have this experience, but it's I'm, been I'm, a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, Com compressed joy. Um, whereas I had that, I had that whole experience 
uh, several years ago, despite being way, <laughs> despite being several years uh, your junior. It's, it's, it's nice when you expect, you set to the task expecting it to feel like homework or like a drag, um, which, you know, it sometimes can be on the show. Like, you know, ever hear some of those late 80s cheap trick albums? Oh, man, those are just really, really bad. Scott Chris Scott's Scalia's on gonna, my side. Chris Scalia is going to get you on that. Yeah, um, but uh, this one, this one wasn't okay. Yeah, there's some there's some real crap at the end of Yellow's career, but for the most part, they kept up their quality control well into the era where I think a lot of other fans of theirs uh, say that they started to suck. So I, I will be making some contrarian hot takes during this episode. Good. I think that's like a law in in the the way that the internet and and media are now. There has to be at least one hot take per podcast, whatever the subject, whoever the hosts. I'm here for the slate pitches. All right. <laughs> this this will be really interesting uh, uh, for for a number of reasons. Not not the least of which I think this is just an interesting career arc that the band had because they are uh, I think bigger. They were bigger than people think and or remember. Uh, 50 million records sold. They had 20 top 20 hits. In fact, they have the most top 40 hits on the Billboard charts without ever having a number one. So 20 top 20 hits, uh, 20 top 40 hits, never a number one. They're Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Uh, And yet, after they disbanded in 86 or so, uh, Jeff Lynne came back with an album called Zoom that we probably won't talk a whole lot about, but that was like 2001. And he's like, all right, new album, let's go tour. And they, they canceled the tour because no one bought tickets. No one cared about Jeff Lynne and ELO in 2001. So he goes underneath again and comes back, uh, what, about three, four years ago. And all of a sudden, he's a hero. I mean, getting massive crowds singing along. So in that 15-year span or so, the entire catalog sort of was either rediscovered or re-evaluated as being something pretty special. And even this summer uh, of 2019... I had a friend say, you know, ELO's playing the Little Caesars Arena in Detroit. I mean, that's a huge arena to fill, and they're playing venues like that across the country. So somehow there's uh, there's demand now for Jeff Lynn's ELO, which literally is Jeff Lynn and a bunch of guys. I mean, uh, Beb Bevan was with him for a long time, and then Richard Tandy, even through some of the uh, relaunches. I, I don't think Tandy's touring anymore, so it's just Jeff Lynn and some guys that are now ELO. But Jeff Lynn, you know, by and large, is ELO. Uh, but it looks like they're going to tour big places again this this coming summer. So uh, we get people to chew on uh, some things to chew on here about the ELO career. Yeah, if I could go into some general speculation before we get into specifics of yeah. the band, I think they may have been, in a sense, cursed by uh, at their peak sort of consistency and and in not having like a smash. It almost would have been better for them in terms of their public awareness if they had had like a an amazing like one hit wonder and then just kind of faded away but they never really had that they never got almost they never got all the way to the top but they were always just bubbling under um at least on the charts just bubbling under being like a runaway success they were they were always successful they were but they were never like oh my gosh here's the frampton comes alive yellow <laughs> equivalent um where'd where'd this guy come from See, but uh, Frampton was like, wasn't he just like that one album and that was it? And that was like a massive success, but he never really placed anything highly in the charts. I went back and I looked, like all these records are like top 15, yeah, top 10. Yeah. And when you were in the late 70s, the amount of vinyl that was being moved in the record industry back then, that's a crap ton of records yep. they were selling. Yep. Yep. Uh, they weren't moving them at the start, though, and that's where we begin the story. As, as Jeff mentioned, this Electric Light Orchestra was an offshoot 
from a band called The Move, which featured both uh, both Roy Wood and Jeff Lynne, and in fact, uh, Bev Bevitt as well, who was a member of, of The Move. They all came over and an offshoot, and virtually any sort of uh, retrospective or or article about the band you read will, will tell you that this started because they wanted to do what the Beatles were doing, but take it further and add some strings and add some orchestration to modern rock and pop songs. And specifically, I think in Roy Wood's mind, some, some classical overtones as well in those early albums. And so that's where we get uh, the, the first album, ELO, or if you're in America, No Answer, uh, named because I think the story is someone at the record label tried to call an ELO rep to figure out what the name of the album was going to be. No one answered, and she wrote down No Answer in the log. Someone saw it and said, oh, that must be the name of the album. So <laughs> it's, it's ELO uh, elsewhere, Electric Light Orchestra. It's No Answer in the U.S., and uh, here is the only album we have in which we have Jeff Lynne and Roy Wood working together on their ideas. And um, I want to turn over to the ELO superfan first, who, of course, is Jack on this show, to start a, and give us a little baseline to, to work with on, on this debut album from Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah, so this is a fascinating album because if you listen to this and then, like, listen to, I know I'm sort of, being uh, anachronistic here, but if you listen to this and then jump to something like uh, Out of the Blue immediately afterward, it's almost like, is this the same band? <laughs> um, and it's sort of a fascinating thing in that sense because, as you said, Jeff Lynne and Roy Wood are collaborating, and you have a sort of uh, Lennon-McCartney partnership because Lynn and Wood come from, despite having migrated to ELO from the same band, they have very different... Um, they come from very different places musically. They have different interests in what they want, what sounds they want to be prominent, what themes they want to explore. So just the whole album is, it it it, it hones in on this dissonance between them, that the, this creative tension that produces some good stuff, I think. And I, I think the best example of the of these two collaborating is in 105.38 Overture, which more resembles, like it, it wouldn't be, too as much out of place on later ELO albums as mm -hmm. the rest of the stuff on on this album is, um, and it's a great song. It's sort of I'm the Walrusy in a way. Um, it's 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 like the first example of Lynn with Wood's help figuring out what ELO's ultimate sound might be. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, though, you have just these bizarre forays into like <laughs> historical music, like attempts to sonically create battles in england um it's just it's it's a weird album and there's there's a there's a prog influence which would sort of disappear ultimately by the band's peak the only other song on here that i think resembles even in any way what elo would later become would be mr radio um sort of prefiguring the the queen obsession with and the uh and other artists who became obsessed with the radio as a sort of companion. Uh, it has it has a like a string fade in that is redolent of later Lynn efforts.
other than that, though, this is this is just a bizarre thing to like consider as part of part of ELO's discography. I still like it, but it's just <laughs> it's just a fascinating historical artifact. I'm quite a fan of this album, and this album was a wonderful discovery for me. I mean, as I said earlier, uh, you know, earlier, I'm I'm a big prog rock fan. Um, I'm very into art rock, and the early '70s in, in in the UK in particular was just so fertile for this stuff. And of course, that's why it kind of makes sense that the album was on Harvest Harvest Records, which was also Pink Floyd's label, it was the label that Henry Cow would sign to. I think Soft Machine had eventually ended up uh, recording for them as well. Um, this is you know the album. Uh, the, the album label that British um, arty guys uh, who had some pop instincts but basically wanted to stretch out and spread their wings uh, ended up taking their talents to. So finding out that ELO was a part of their fold, their stable for their early years makes perfect sense to me. I I really love this. I think I agree with you that the 10538 uh, Overture is by far the best song on this album. And you're right, it is the one that, that you could definitely hear it on like Face the Music or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of like you know, Fire on High or something like that. That sounds like 1053 overture uh but i really love the roy wood stuff on this too i love look at me now i love that instrumental that opens the second half uh the first movement i think that's great it he ends it with, the album ends with this uh really beautiful ballad called whisper in the night which is you know probably the only concession that wood makes to sort of a traditional sounding pop song on the record uh lynn likes to do that you know the overture is is, is you know pretty rocking tune so is mr radio again the first thing that's kind of hints at their later pop career but uh but wood doesn't and wood kind of takes that in an even weirder direction when he ends up leaving the band and going off to form wizard mm-hmm. and then recording uh, you know his own solo work as well again people check out boulders it's awesome it's probably on youtube somewhere um but uh i really I, this album is flawed like i i think obviously there's stuff like uh, the battle of marston moore that's the one that you, jack was referring to about like yeah this is like you know a battle from like the english civil war or something like that recreated sonically for your pleasure oh it's boring <laughs> i think i think i even uh read I, I of course inevitably go to wikipedia and i'm reading about these things i think like uh what's their 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 bassist or their drummer bevan uh, refused yep. to play on the song yes said, that's right yeah it's a piece of crap i was like i don't want to be associated <laughs> with this it's like I've had it up to here with your 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 hoity-toity art rock concepts, Roy. Come on, but uh, I don't even think it's that bad. It's just a little bit over the top. But yeah, that first half of the record, those first three songs, you know, the, the one hundred five three eight overture, "Look at Me Now," and Nelly takes her bow. It's Lynn Woodlin, just such a nice little sandwich of music with with weird orchestral touches. And by the way, this is something that Scott referred to earlier. 
for the longest time, I had, of course, known of the existence of Electric Light Orchestra, um, even though I hadn't heard their music. But it was only then, only now, rather, that I finally <laughs> understood what the title of the band meant. I thought it was like, you know, like, here, big lights flashing on stage, you know, like being Well, big, it would big, become big. that later. Yeah. Well, of course it would, right. <laughs> I, I guess that's why, you know, I always thought of that cover of Out of the Blue where, you know, the band's little, like, spaceship looks like a Simon game, you know, with all the lights, you know, lining up, you know, lighting up. But no, it, it's not that at all. It's a very British term, a light orchestra, which is not something I think you hear um, in, in American parlance unless you're a real classical music snob. Uh, it means a small string ensemble, you know, as opposed to like a 30-piece orchestra. And yet, so this is a small string ensemble, but it's with electric instruments, hence the electric light orchestra. And this album and then the one that comes up next, which I like even more, are just perfect actual embodiments of that concept. Like you really hear like this is supposed to be a concept band. They weren't originally supposed to fold up the move. This is just going to be like their their interesting side project. And then this kind of took over. They just decided, well, this is what we want to focus on because, it, you know, they realized that the 60s are over and now we're in the 70s and everybody likes prog. So we're going to be this prog group. <laughs> um, you hear that concept coming through of a light orchestra with electrified instruments. And it's much more avant-garde and weird and strange to me delightfully so than the rest of their career uh i'm a little more toward jack's opinion on uh, on this very first album um all three of us agree what uh what five three eight overture that that's the best song of the album that that's really in my mind one of the best songs in their career that's a fantastic song i think it was used um in the american hustle uh, movie, or at least on the trailer, it great- was yeah. Jeff, it was a, a, a version that Jeff Lynn redid like mm. within the past couple of years. But yes, yeah, same song. But it's just great, and there is yes, there's a lot of Beatles influence. I hear the like the guitar riff from "I Want You" that descending, those descending riffs, uh, uh, kind of copied, used in, in this overture. <laughs> It's a fantastic song. Uh, Jeff Lynne, not the best lyricist in the world. I will point out, the very, I think the very first lyric on the very first song, the very first album is, did you see your friend crying from his eyes today? And of course, I want to ask, where else would he be crying from? I, I, I don't think you want to answer that question. <laughs> so that, that, that sounds like something Donald Trump might have said. You know? <laughs> that's right. He's crying from, you know, wherever. Uh, I like Queen of the Heart, or uh, uh, is it Queen of, the, Queen of the Hours? Queen of the Hours. Queen of the Hours, which is another Jeff Lynne song. Um, very nice violin matching the vocal melody in the chorus. A little more poppy as Lynn stuff was on on the first album, uh, and even first movement, which is an instrumental. Uh, it's, I think it's a wood song. Uh, very acoustic, uh, pleasant song. I, I kind of my notes say uh, kind of the Kinks with strings uh, from a few years before, like Village Green era Kinks, but with some strings involved. It's a pleasant album. There is sort of the dichotomy between 
or the, uh, uh, you know, you, you see where Lynn might want to push this band and where Wood might want to push this band. And it's evident to the songs that they wrote respectively for the album. That, um, I don't want to call it a conflict, but the, those, that divergence of, 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 of views would go away by ELO too because Roy Wood would be gone, uh, leaving to form Wizard. And so now you have Jeff Lynn. Uh, alone uh, for ELO2 as the main songwriter and most of the time singer on these songs. I just want to point out the irony that this was a, actually supposed to be Roy Wood's band. Yes. Remember, <laughs> Jeff, Je- Jeff Lynn joined um, The Move very late in their career. Like, you know, after their second album, I think, you know, it was 1971. And, uh, you know, and then the whole idea of doing this like little kind of interesting art rock side project was Woods. And then Woods like, I'm out. You know, and so <laughs> Jeff Lynn is kind of left holding the bag, and uh, you know everybody's, I think, expecting them to be like, "Well, that's it." You know, that's you know that's the end of the band. It was the opposite. He went on to like so much more commercial success. Yes. Yeah, and I, I the the last thing to say about No Answer is that it's a it's a fascinating what if to to imagine what what ELO would have been like if that sort of Wood Lynn partnership had continued. I would have loved to see what it had, what it would evolve into. Probably a much more prog rock oriented band than ELO would ultimately become. Um, but that's something we'll never know, alas. <laughs> Instead, what we have is uh, again a Jeff Lynne helmed ELO two, and uh, I, I must say this is the most predictable take perhaps in the history of political beats, in which I am I'm literally listening to ELO two and thinking. This isn't very good. Uh, I don't like this very much. Uh, man, that, that song's not... No, I don't like that one at all. But you know who's going to love this? Jeff. Jeff is going to love ELO2. I have no doubt in my mind Jeff is going to love this uh, this album, ELO2. And I'm pretty I sure... I think it's my favorite one I of the albums. So let, <laughs> let, so let me say like four, three quick things, and I'll turn it over to the person who loves this album because you, you don't want to hear me rag on it. But uh, boy, I, I don't like this very much at all. It's it's very prog rock for 1973. I, I don't like the eight-minute-long rollover Beethoven. I don't like In Old England Town, the plotty, lengthy songs... Um, the one song that I think is decent, I think Mama's Okay. It's a very sweet song, very lush song, some pop elements. I would have liked to have seen it trimmed down lengthwise, uh, as would be the case with most songs on ELO2. I, I, look, I can't tell you, I can't recommend you listen to literally anything on ELO2. Jeff is going to tell me why I'm wrong. I am going to recommend that you listen to everything on ELO2. And it is hilarious how you are absolutely right in figuring out how we would react to these albums differently. Um, I, I, I get it. Yes, there are flaws. There are flaws in this album. There are flaws with the production of this album. This album has some of the crappiest sounding vocals recorded vocals i have ever heard apparently jeff lynn sealed himself up inside a burlap bag and then you know (laughs) stood two doors down in a different room and then howled his vocals into the microphone and that's what they end up sounding like on the album horribly recorded vocals i suspect perhaps he was trying to disguise the fact that he still wasn't very confident as a vocalist and didn't really know how to sing it's nothing like in his later years when he was like pulling out falsettos and mm-hmm. you know these tight beetle-like harmonies he hadn't figured any of that out yet but man i love the proggy sprawl of this album every track of this is fun i think maybe the weakest one is the last one the longest song they ever did that kuyama it's uh i don't even know what it is I, apparently it's like some sort of anti-war thing listen i'm not listening to, to yellow for their lyrics at all i'm listening <laughs> to the power of their music and the perfect example of this 
you mentioned it and you said you didn't like it. Well, Scott, you're just so wrong. I actually, I wish I had known this cover existed when we did our cover episode. Okay. All right. Because I love their version of Rollover Beethoven. Oh, it, wow. it's, you didn't even know about this? Oh, didn't I'm again even envious. Know, as I said, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. As I said, that this is all new to me. So, like, you know, this is the Rollover Beethoven. It's by Chuck Berry, obviously. But this is actually probably, you know, I think more spiritually, it's a cover of the Beatles version of Rollover Beethoven, uh, which is itself obvious obviously a Chuck Berry cover. And, and then I think of it also in the same sense as I think of Yes doing Every Little Thing off of their first album in 1969. What they do is they take the Beatles song Every Little Thing and they just rip it apart and reassemble it you know, into its component pieces and it, they just turn it into this ridiculous rave up. Roll Over Beethoven is... It, what, what, yeah, I don't even know how to describe this to people who haven't heard it. It's eight minutes long. There's like dissonant squawking strings. There's freak out guitar solos. It opens with this portentous organ that, you know, likes the volume goes up. Ooh, boom. It's every single prog rock cliche that you could imagine. Yet it's put into this weird symphonic rock orchestral version of one of the most basic rock standards in you know, the history of the, of the common songbook. And I love it. I wouldn't shave a second off of it. just that song i really like the rest of this music mama is great i really like in old england town but the one that really speaks there's only five songs on this record the one that really speaks to me is uh from the sun to the world it's the first song on the second side you know there's only two songs on the side uh boogie number one i think that has some just beautiful oceanic riffs so this is the moment where i was like okay jeff lynn you know he, he's not just copying a few interesting hooks here or there he could actually write a really melodically interesting song i love that ending you know storming down the airwaves comes the protest and the prayer and the love that's shown down from the sun to the world it's just really good music and i don't think that it's over long I don't really think that anything except the last song on this album, you know, is 
too self-indulgent. I, I, I don't feel that way about this music. I know that you do, Scott, but the, you, frankly, that's because there's just no art in your soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I can I try to mediate the conflict here that's emerging between you two? This yes. is probably why ultimately I was invited to be on here, so that you you, you didn't end up going at each other's We didn't end up throttling each other. The, the last ever episode of Political Beat. <laughs> over, over ELO, we fell out, yes. Uh, so I'm I conveniently happen to be somewhat right in the middle of you two. I think there is there's some good stuff on here. I wholeheartedly agree with what you say about rollover Beethoven. Uh, I would I would put this in my uh, favorite ELO songs, but I've I discounted covers from from that, so that's the only reason it disqualifies. It's just it just has so much energy, and it's a great example of what I refer to as literal ELO in the sense of like. This is literally electric light orchestra stuff. They they take roll over Beethoven, but then they actually, <laughs> unlike other versions of the song, they they throw actual Beethoven into it. Right, actually, they, yeah. <laughs> they they have they have the 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 orchestral elements to do that, so they just do it. And but at the same time, they don't lose any of the rock. They don't lose any of the energy. They don't lose any of the raw rawness. It's just all there. It just it's amazing. And again, I, again, I agree with you that you don't. I wouldn't take a single second off of it. Things I would take a couple seconds off of include uh, most of the rest of the album. Uh, I, I think I think ELO. I think this is Jeff Lynne still sort of figuring out what. Now that he's in charge of the band, now that Roy Wood's gone, he's figuring out. Okay, what am I going to do with this thing? So he's here's him just maximizing his prog rock instincts, seeing how far he can go with that, how how interesting it is to him, and the furthest the at the furthest extent he took that was the last song Kuyama, which is. I think the only like explicitly political ELO song, at least that I can think of, and I, again, as a sort of bizarre historical artifact, uh, com- contrasted with what they would end up doing, it's it's fa- it's fascinating. I I enjoy it. I like I like uh, just sort of getting into the groove of long prog rock songs. And again, this is the longest ELO I've ever got. But like. Like you, Jeff, I don't, I, I don't listen to ELO for its the the profundity of its protest lyrics. And besides, <laughs> the Vietnam War was was not really like they they were late to the game for the ELO for um, Vietnam protest songs. Um, the other one thing worth noting about the other songs in this album, it was going to be a concept album, sort of about uh, space travel, I think, if I understand correctly, and that's where some of the more space-oriented lyrics from other songs come from. I'm kind of glad that they got rid of that because I don't think that Jeff Lynne was ready for that. He would be later. Not, uh, not... No, I don't think he was ever ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a, uh, I'm telegraphing my hot takes. I'm... Oh, well, well, we'll we'll get to that later. But again, this is an interesting album. There's good stuff on here. I don't. It's not. It's not my favorite Yellow album, but I, I don't think it should be entirely discarded in the way that Scott does. So there, there's me being lukewarm. I know that's not allowed. <laughs> in hot take world but that, that's where i am so well, sorry if you didn't like yellow's second album you thought they were getting too proggy uh, you know heavens be blessed they changed their approach not completely but you really see all the big seeds of what massive hit making elo was going to become on their third album which they called because they're clever lads on the third day um this is the one it has like that sort of semi proggy semi pretentious conceit when the opening was the first half is like you know ocean breakup slash king of the universe (laughs) new world rising slash ocean breakup reprise don't you love that stuff i just actually the thing is the thing is you listen to those songs and they're all really catchy tunes 
there's just nothing in there that's like like it's not like um trying to think of like what would my example of like real failed prog be you know uh it's not like uh, one of those horrible late 70s era jethro tall albums like <laughs> minstrel in the gallery or something like that or songs from the wood it, it it's 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 you know just actually basically very catchy poppy stuff yes i said lynn was finding out what he wanted to be so in the in between those two songs which are quite beautiful you have like bluebird is dead and you know oh no not susan which is the one that has the curse word in it um <laughs> that those are just you know kind of just sort of poppy-esque i almost feel like you could imagine mccartney plunking them out during like a you know uh, an off day during the abbey road sessions or something like that but it's really on the second half of that album that i really start to you know you hear ELO as they became famous and the one I love the most is is an instrumental it's called daybreak yeah i have yeah. no idea why this thing isn't a massive hit isn't one of their most famous songs i guess because there's no words you know <laughs> it's so funny because this is 1973 i guess and it yep. sounds like Mannheim steamroller yes Every, everybody knows Mannheim steamroller like all the christmas like synthed up christmas classics well the big massive hook on that thing is straight up like i feel like Mannheim steamroller copped elo's licks which is entirely possible <laughs> actually i love it i love that early synth sound i love the big oceanic hook that drives it which i guess somebody pointed out to me on twitter that it sounds almost like it was taken from everlasting love you know Great, great song, even though there are no words to it. But uh, I think the, everything on this album is, is, again, pretty good, except for that last thing, which is where you kind of got the sense that Lynn was really you know, losing his interest in Prague, because it's a cover of, of Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King, never one of my favorite themes in the first place. But I just think that they, they, they turn it into some boring program music. They don't do anything really creative with it. I think that, that The Who even did a better job with this when they you know, did a rocked-out version of it in 1968. You can find it on the Who Sell Outs reissue. Uh, I don't like that, and it goes on forever. It's like six and a half minutes long. But I think the rest of this is just you know perfectly lovely music. And I guess, and particularly on the second half of this album, it gets brilliant with that, and then with the with the Mark Boland track, which is uh, Mama Ma Bell, yep. something like that. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. I love that song too. And I love, and you do hear Mark Boland's guitar coming through on it as well. The uh, one of my takes on ELO, it's not a hot take, but it is a take, is that the, of all the bands we've we've covered on uh, political beats thus far, ELO in my mind uh, travels perhaps the most predictable career arc, meaning uh, some time to figure things out, then they get going and they have some success, and then a peak, and then a decline. You know, just a a a predictable career path. 
And for me, this third album, which has a very weird cover, by the way, the UK version, at least, with Jeff Lynne sort of peering over the earth, it's a little odd. But this is where they, they begin to gain traction, is how I'll say. They're, they're, they're going uphill at this point. They're figuring some things out. Uh, Daybreaker is great. I totally agree with Jeff uh, about Daybreaker. Uh, the one that uh, I don't think he likes quite as much, but I, I, I love is Showdown. And John Lennon loves Showdown, too. Showdown's the standout track for me from, from on the third day. Lennon said, and I will just, you know, quote him, he's right, it's a, it's a combination of, I heard it through the grapevine, and then Lou Christie's lightning strikes in the, in the choruses. Uh, it's dead on. It's, it's a great description. It's this very funky backbeat, these sweeping strings. I love, if you listen closely, those little notes that are plucked uh, during the verses. And... Um, and it's used to great effect. A lot of ELO uh, songs are used in movies, and I'm sure we'll mention more as the as the show goes on. This was used in the great comedy Kingpin, uh, the, the the bowling matchup between uh, Bill Murray's character and Woody Harrelson's character, and likely was the first time I heard Showdown was while watching the movie Kingpin. But uh, Showdown is a fantastic song. I, I just love it. She cried to the Bird is dead. Jeff mentioned that. That's very Beatlesy, uh, uh, kind of a, a Sergeant Pepper era Beatles. Um, and uh, yeah, Mama Mama Bell. I don't love. Uh, you know, Boland's guitar comes through loud and clear. It's okay. It's not a great song. It's okay though. But there are moments here again. Daybreaker showdown. Bluebird is dead. Where I think Jeff Lynne is finding out where he wants to go with the band. That would that would only continue in the future. This is a. A, a fine effort, not great, just a fine effort with some highlights. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. I, I'm not as, I'm also not as fond as of uh, Mama Mabel. Uh, that was on the ELO Greatest Hits album that was in my dad's car, and I always <laughs> skipped that one. <laughs> um, I, I also often skipped Showdown, which now I can't justify because I think Showdown is great, and not just because John Lennon told me it's great. Um, but I, another thing I want to mention about Showdown, in that same interview that you mentioned, Scott, uh, John Lennon also called ELO Son of Beatles, which mm-hmm. must have, when Jeff Lynne heard that, he must have passed out. <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I think, I, I, th- I, I will again agree with John Lennon here. Uh, and, and, and this is the first time, that's one of the, the best early examples of ELO earning that title, the song Showdown, it, which I agree with everything you said about it. Um, yeah, there's let's, what's what else is on here? Oh yeah, um, oh no, not Susan is the this is one of the better instances, at least in the early ELO of Jeff Lynne as a lyricist, sort of talking about the emptiness of material things, and, and it's got that ELO's soul f bomb, which is noteworthy in itself.
I'll put a brief in, in favor of In the Hall of the Mountain King for for the very least this reason. And this is this is sort of a a dialectical argument, so it's sort of unfair because we are standing at the end of this band's discography. Like if I had been if I had been a contemporary listener, I couldn't have said this unless I had a time machine. But we'll get time machines <laughs> yeah, later. Soon, soon. Um This is another example of Jeff Lynn sort of uh focusing in on literal ELO. Like Okay, well we have we have a electric guitar. We also have we have like a mini orchestra here. Let's do something that orchestras do. And yeah, I guess it can get kind of boring, although I really like the like mid-song almost fiddle sounding transition into the faster part. But this 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 song's instrumental, so to speak, in uh in later efforts that f- figured out the balance between uh the electric and the light orchestra better. So, in, in terms of of an experimental thing in terms of helping Lynn figure out what he couldn't couldn't do by f- uh, focusing on music in this way. It's an important track, but it's not it's not the most uh, important yellow song, and it's nowhere near the best. So there's my there's my lukewarm take again. <laughs> Political beats here. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Jack Butler is our guest today, host of Ricochet's Young Americans podcast, Sidekick on the Remnant with Jonah Goldberg here at National Review. Find him on Twitter at uh, Jack Butler forty eight fifteen. There are some ELO fans uh, that would tell you this next one is perhaps their best. Uh, I don't know about that. El Dorado would be next. I do think it's again an improvement from the uh, from on the third day. Uh, this is again the band on the on the uphill climb, and it had their first real hit and the first song that perhaps most people have heard of. And it's called Can't Get It Out of My Head. The story behind this, apparently, is <laughs> Jeff Lynn's dad wasn't real happy with the band thus far with ELO. It's like, you guys don't have any tunes. I don't like any of that stuff. You guys don't have any good tunes. And so Jeff Lynn set out to uh, write a song to impress his dad and ended up writing Can't Get It Out of My Head, which was their first top 10 single in the U.S., um, it's a fine song. I think he would do similar things better in the future, so I can't say it's among their best, but it's a fine song. Uh, lyrics of unrequited love, very wistful feel to it, and Jeff Lynne did, did wistful pretty well at times through his career. Uh, there's some good stuff. Poor Boy. Uh, oh, by the way, I should mention, it, 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 you know, the, the, the cover is, uh, is the Wizard of Oz with the, uh, the ruby slippers. It is a concept album about a... And most of ELO's concepts are very loose. You get this big kind of concept, and, and the threads don't always pull all the way through. But uh, this is kind of like a, a character who's kind of fallen into a fantasy dream world. Although Lynn himself doesn't say whether it was real or not. If it, if it, or I'm, t- I'm maybe misremembering a, a quote. but um, And so Poor Boy is, is this dreamer fascinating that he's one of Robin Hood's merry men, essentially. But it's a fun song. Very big song with these cascading orchestra si- uh, strings and choir uh, backing vocals throughout. Um, one of my other favorites from El Dorado is Laredo Tornado. Uh, we hear some of Jeff Lynne's falsetto in the chorus here. And it's not a kitchen sink approach, but there is a little bit of everything in here. It's kind of a grimy rocker at times. There's some funkiness to it. There's violins and, and fiddles. There's a point about halfway through where everything drops out. You just hear the drums and, and Lynn's vocals. It's kind of a foot stomping good time, as, as foot stomping as ELO might get.
I have to say I, I find amusing as, you know, as I went through the ELO discography is during this period Jeff Lynne every now and then just keeps seeming to throw in songs about being a southerner or like a cowboy out on the range like like you know we're gonna get to another one on the next out which i think is actually just a hoot and a half but like yeah you're from birmingham man not birmingham <laughs> alabama mind you but birmingham england it's just really strange to be so obsessed with it when you're that english yes. well it's the the i think i i don't know if this is a is an exhaustive explanation but i think this comes from uh Jeff Lynn, the other the other main musical influence that he got from his upbringing, in addition to being like a young Beatles fan, he he loved like Del Shannon and Roy Orbison, both mm-hmm. of whom he would later get the chance to work with. But those aren't those guys aren't necessarily like entirely country artists. So, it, but they're they are American. So I I don't know. I guess that explains that helps explains it. <laughs> But it is, you're right, it is kind of a strange thing. Because it doesn't sound even the slightest bit like right. authentic Western country kind of a thing. It it sounds like, you know, a, a British Beatlesque popper doing a song, but throwing it, it's Laredo. And, and then on the next one where they start singing Dixie, oh man, I just cracked up on that one. We'll get to that. But anyway, Scott, I cut you off. No, the only other thing I wanted to mention was this is the album in which uh, Jeff Lynne gets a real uh, actual orchestra to work with. It's not just a couple of uh, of band members. There's, a, I think, a 30-piece orchestra involved in putting El Dorado together, which is why it sounds beefier and a little more full than, than past efforts. Uh, for me, a step up from on the third day, uh, but but just prior to really Jeff Lynne putting all the pieces together, which would happen, uh, happen next. What can I say about El Dorado? Um... Yeah, it's an album, I guess. Um, you know, oh, it, it's a piece of vinyl. I, I, I don't really have any good things to say about this album. I, I first of all, it's a huge step back in my mind from uh you know from on the third day hmm. and from the first three albums in general uh, i know why people consider it a step forward is because it, lynn has mastered the studio and this you know, again you, you have that you know the full orchestra which i think is a mistake um it, it's so smooth and professional sounding but it ends up sounding like uh to steal a term from uh, our friend terry Teachout who joined us on the podcast to talk about the band and he was contrasting the band with other groups that he was into at the time. One in particular was Crosby, Stills and Nash. He said, you know, I go back now and I listen to CSN and it just sounds like it's like baby food. And that is exactly what El Dorado sounds like to me. You know, it's, it's very pleasant, smoothly unchallenging gloop. It just slides over the palate and down the throat, doesn't raise any alarms, doesn't do anything weird. But as again, I said this all last night when I was talking about it, I like my mashed potatoes to be lumpy. I like some <laughs> some oddness and some weirdness, some obstacles, some interesting quirks. There's nothing quirky about El Dorado. I find it to just be completely pedestrian in its smoothness and can't get it out of my head. I just violently revolt against um, <laughs> Another another friend of ours, a friend of the show, is Mark Davis. Big fan of the, he he joined us to do Paul McCartney and Wings, yes. and when he joined us to do Wings, he talked about how it's like you know when I was a kid because he was actually a kid at the time. It's like I really loved My Love mm-hmm. by McCartney, and I was just like, oh god, that's such a terrible song. 
can't get it out of my head is exactly like my love and I hate it for the same reasons it's so perfectly professionally smooth but there isn't a single thing in it whatsoever that arouses any interest or emotion in me um, it just completely goes through you like uh, crap through a goose and I ask myself you know I pray to God I say Heavenly Father was I put on this earth for a reason God do you have a purpose for me in my life and I swear to God that if God has a purpose for me in my life, it is to rail on crap like this, to make sure to make the world unsafe for pleasing 70s ballads that have very accomplished string sections, but nothing of melodic or rhythmic interest in them. how I feel about can't get it out of my head and I guess that's I can, that affects the way I feel about so much of El Dorado otherwise I, I like I like Boy Blue for example but come on man that's Hang On Sloopy by another name you know that chorus Hang On Sloopy Sloopy Hang On you can sing that over Boy Blue I guarantee you it works it's just strange I guess you know the one that I wouldn't knock uh, is the one with the most pretentious name which is Illusion in G Major um, that's a rock song. It's a good rock song. I really like that song. I don't know why, you know, he he dressed it up in this this tartuffery, but I, I think that's a good piece. But no, I think in general, this album is everything I feared ELO would be when I first picked them up last week. This is what I was expecting to hear throughout all of their albums. This kind of crap. Very well accomplished, very well put together but otherwise unengaging music. And I'm really glad, actually, that the rest of their music doesn't sound like this at all. That's my hot take. Fight me. I gladly. Well, first off, I think the problem is uh, you're not listening to it backwards. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, but not really, because this is the first time that Yellow would be accused of hiding satanic messages yes. uh, through backmasking. So... Maybe. Oh, I, I hear them all over this album. I mean, actually, <laughs> I, I literally, you know, you know, put a pentagram in my baby's nursery room after i was done listening <laughs> to this last night oh well i guess i guess they were they were right about uh, el dorado all along um but i think you're i i, I you you couldn't there's no accounting tell me how here. wrong i am jack don't hold back i uh, i won't call me call me a goddamn fool do it you are a goddamn fool this is a, this is i think this is elo's best album as a coherent whole i think they have they they do better songs on later albums but this as a as a product from start to finish as a thing you just sit down and listen to from one song to the next is their best coherent product um i love almost everything on here from the uh the classic prog rocky um overture sampling the themes of the rest of the album all the way through to the oh, to the last song to the finale literally called finale i mean ELO is kind of late to the, to the concept album game at this point in 1974, but they still do it really well here, I, I think. But, but they don't have the problem that some concept albums have of, make, of hitting you over the head too much with the story. It's more of an impressionistic approach. You get a sense of 
the protagonist sort of imagining different dreamlands song by song, imagining different stories. And you, you, you get a, a sense of all the adventures he's going on, but also you get a, a sense of like reality creeping back in. Um, Scott mentioned Laredo Tornado. There's the moment in Laredo Tornado when the, the music sort of mutes and you hear the, the, the lyrics, what can you do when your dream world is gone and your friends and loved ones too? I, th- I think about that a lot for, for some reason. Maybe it's because I'm a Walter Mitty-esque dreamer caught between <laughs> fantasy and reality. Who knows? But I just love, I can't get it out of my head. I, I can't get it out of my head and neither could listeners in 1974. It was their, their first top 10 hit. Uh, Boy Blue, just triumphant um, with, a, with a trumpet of triumph. Um, I agree with you. I guess our one point of convergence here is liking Illusions in G Major, although it's my it's not even my standout track of the album, but it is a nice rocker with clever lyrics. He name checks the Rolling Stones, which I don't know if ELO really had the cred to do at that point. But you know what? If you if you're gonna do it, just if you if you if you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. And so why not? Also, I'll put a brief in for Mr. Kingdom as well, which is kind of an across-the-universe uh, homage, but is also great at uh, using the orchestra to express this this tension in that the album tries to express of between of getting caught between fantasy and reality. Um, and I, I also love the pretentious spoken word intro and outros. I, <laughs> it sounded like they were done by someone famous, but I don't. I can't. The guy sounds good, but I don't. I don't really know. I, I've looked him up before, and I can't see anything else he's done so i i love this album as a concept album i, I just assume it. they brought in graham edge from the moody blues you know? <laughs> yeah after he was done with he, the late he, lament he, he's my man exactly he's my man for pretentious spoken word poetry and british uh art rock music yeah so i'm 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 sorry that you don't enjoy this album i mean i i, I expressed envy that you got to rediscover yellow's discography from scratch just like last week but i'm sad <laughs> that you, you 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 did that and you didn't enjoy this well listen don't cry for me jack butler and i'll tell you why because the next album they put out i think is maybe their best album you know if it is isn't the ELO2, which is totally different style. It's very proggy. If you want, like, you know, classic ELO in there, like, you know, awesome Beatlesque pop hit making moan, man, can you do any better than face the music? I love this record. And I didn't know a single song on it until I heard it. I guess, again, now I'm a liar because Evil Woman, I, I, I swear to God, I am sure I have heard that at least once or twice. That Evil Woman hook, just it's like one of those things that when you hear it, it lodges in your brain and it just sits down there amidst the folds and it never comes back until you hear it again and the little light goes on in your head and you're like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. But, that's a good hook, even though the song is stupid. I mean, I think it was written at the last second. Oh, it was literally, it took 15 minutes to write. Um, I mean, 
uh, it took 15 minutes to write, and of course, it's the biggest hit from this album. It's an even bigger hit than the one I think that should have been the big hit, which is Knight Rider. Yeah. Can, oh, man, Knight Rider is an amazing <laughs> pop song. And I get why it wasn't a big hit. It's, it's, it's not quite obvious enough. It doesn't have that big, obvious, dumb, 70s, smooth rock and hook like Evil Woman does. But it's got all these wonderful things going on. You totally see where bands like, you know, later in later years, like, say, Tears for Fears, when they're doing, like, songs from the big chair or sowing the seeds of love and they're like going back to that beatlesque stuff you know sowing the seeds of love that song in particular everybody says like oh it's a very sergeant peppery strawberry fields forever kind of a tribute but man it's just as much an elo tribute as it is anything that the beatles did uh because jeff lynn perfected that style on this song There's, there's nothing on this album that I don't like. I even like the gloopy ballad, like Waterfall, which you know has the most obvious George Harrison ripoff guitar sound ever. Uh, which I guess again, you know, is clearly you know showing that Jeff Lynne's secret yearnings were, were to be reunited with the Beatles, uh, and I don't think he could have anticipated the way that would happen. But man, you could just see it telegraphed all the way early on in 1975. Uh, I could literally mention every single song on this album. There, not a single song on this album is bad. Not one. The le- the weakest maybe is One Summer Dream, which isn't bad, but I don't know. They never. I don't think that ELO ever really closed their albums with any real bangers, any truly great songs. Um, this one's like another slow ballad, but it- it's pretty good. It's not bad. It-, it manages to maintain my interest, particularly the instrumentation on it. But uh, I-, I don't want to like steal up everything that people are going to say about this. And there's there's, there's definitely one track I want to return to in a little bit. But yeah, I love Face the Music. And I think that you know a lot of people cite to a new world record or out of the blue. But I think this is their true masterpiece from the, you know, the classic era. Here's my. I'll, I'm not. I haven't given up on your your hatred of El Dorado. And here's here's a. Here's oh a yeah, we, we got to go back to that. All <laughs> right, right, all right. right. Rake me over the coals, my friend. No, it's. I'm. This is a. It's still keeping in face in face the music. But this is. I think El Dorado sort of prepared the band for face the music. I think El Dorado using a real orchestra on El Dorado helps Jeff Lynne figure out how to fake one better on face the music. So I think. At the very least, you you should appreciate El Dorado for what it was it enabled the band to do better on Face the Music, which they did. I mean, I agree with what every pretty much everything you're saying on Face the Music. It's a great album. Um, Evil Woman was the I think the first ELO song I consciously heard because it's the first song on the greatest hits album that was in my dad's car, which I, I keep going back to. And so, the, but it cut out these the brief uh, orchestral intro that's like five seconds long. Yeah, I think that must right. be the single edit. 
Um, what else is on here? Uh, let's see. There's, yeah, I mean, again, Kelly, we have a, a sort of new band addition who I think is worth mentioning, Kelly Grucut, who became the bassist and sort of and shared uh, vocal duties with Jeff Lynn on a couple songs. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he gets a few lines of his own, I think, on Night Rider, yes, uh, yes, and on and on Poker. Um, and this this album also has my one of my top five yellow tracks in Fire on High. Which yes. Is, Yes, which is just instrumental, but I, I just, I mean, quote unquote, just an instrumental. But it really, it's despite having no lyrics, I think the the song just travels from almost literally from hell to heaven, and is just in like a five and a half minute span, but seems like a, just a two minute pop song in terms of like how fast and effective and and catchy it is. I just, I, I love it so much. I'm so enthusiastic, but that was literally one of the songs where, like, I love it so much, but I, I consciously didn't want to mention it when I was talking it earlier. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta allow someone else to talk about. <laughs> well, it. go ahead. I, it's been mentioned. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's just it's so good. And by the way, ELO probably the most underrated skill is writing instrumentals. Yeah, nobody talks about them, right? You know, everyone talks about the big pop hits, but you know, between this and Daybreaker, those are, geez, those two might be ending up on my list at the end of the show. Um, I love the, the the thing that actually that I always get this one little touch is the quiet fiddle sounds that you mm-hmm. hear yes and, and it's it, it's totally a throwback to like the early roy wood era where you know, roy would be scraping on a cello or something like that but i love that and in the midst of all this bombast you know it's like, you know you used to imagine they, with the title fire on high you imagine like explosions and rocks being thrown into the sky as the bad mountain vesuvius erupts but then you have cuts into that quiet section and it's just so beautiful i'm uh, again for el dorado you know which i insist is is a piece of gloop to be so perfectly sort of preened and there are no bumps there are no there's nothing strange on it I, when they were freed to just do like here's a collection of songs we wrote a bunch of songs uh that made them do weirder stuff you know elder um fire on high being a great example of one but the other one being down home time which i just cannot stop laughing about i don't know if i would put this as one of my favorites 
songs, but I enjoy the ever living hell out of it. Uh, this is this is again, you know, more of Jeff Lynn secretly be obsessed with being a, a southerner <laughs> because this is a song that literally breaks into Dixie halfway through. You know, like, except it's not it's not like a, like a nice southern fried version of Dixie. It's like a chorus line of British women saying, "I wish I was back in Dixie." It's the strangest pastiche of various elements that you could ever imagine. We got the best town friends around Just to listen to their crazy sound When they get hot they're gonna blow You'll see them winning every show Showers in the land of Dixie For reasons that I do not fully understand yet, I'll have to go back and listen to it over and over, and I will listen to this album again. I can guarantee you that. It works, and, and it works so well. Everything on this album works. Strange Magic, another ballad that shouldn't work. That's a great song. That's a really great song. But again, you know, here I am. See, this is what happens when you find me an ELO album that I can legitimately get enthusiastic about. Uh, I need to continue talking about Fire on High a bit, because it's fantastic. It is in my mind, one of the more ELO, ELO songs because there are so many little bits and pieces in there that you could pick out and say, oh, that, that's, a great po- that's a great portion. That's my favorite part. And that's just what Jeff, Jeff Lynn does on his production side. I mean, what don't you like on here? The, the, uh, the, the hallelujahs in the, in the first part uh, of the song. Uh, Jeff Lynn's guitar solo in, in that transition, which reminds me of the guitar solo in the transition um, from uh, Funeral for a Friend and Love Lies Bleeding from Elton John. Very, oh, that is a great comparison. I had very, never thought of that. Yeah, very close. Um, I, I love the beginning. I mean, who doesn't like the beginning of the actual, you know, the rocking portion? You got that fast acoustic strumming, and then that those drums splash through a phaser. I mean, that just sounds awesome. The whole song sounds awesome, from the haunting synths at the beginning to the very, very end. Fire on High is a great song. Um, Strange Magic, uh, Jeff just mentioned. It's not one of my absolute ELO favorites, but one thing I want to mention about it is the way that the choruses keep escalating in Strange Magic. You hear, you hear Strange Magic's chorus three times. The first time is just a little guitar and phaser with the vocals. The second time the drums come in, there are these ascending strings through the chorus. And then the third time, it's even bigger with more strings. It just builds on top of each other. And it's a good example of um, the, kind of the tension and release uh, method of songwriting that uh, Lynn would employ from time to time. Uh, so Strange Magic is good. I have to defend uh, Evil Woman a bit because I, I, I like it. I know it's a throw off. It was meant to just eat some time on the album, but I think it's a good song. I do. It's kind of ELO doing Philly soul in my mind. You've got kind of that funkiness along with those strings that sort of crash in here and there. Uh, that, that clavinet riff played uh, by, by Tandy during the chorus right after, uh, you know, Evil Woman pops in. Tandy's got a great little piano solo on there. There's that that portion right uh, toward the middle with, with the, everything drops. You hear just that that uh, that string break. That's actually the strings from Knight Rider reversed. 
And Lynn said, you know, they're they're in the same key. I just thought I'd try it, and it worked perfectly. I think it does, too. And uh, so I like Evil Woman. I, I will defend Evil Woman. Knight Rider, great, great song. This, to me, as I mentioned, the career arc. Face the Music is the beginning of the, the peak of Electric Light Orchestra. Virtually flawed. I, if I have to say one thing I don't like, I'm not a big fan of poker. Uh, it's okay. It seems a bit out of place on the album. But, I think uh, it's a great song, yeah. but okay. Is it just because it's a different vocalist? Is that why Is that why you're not liking it as much, Scott? I think it's, it has a little to do with that, a little to do with the tempo and, and the arrangement of it compared to other things on Face the music i mean like i said it's okay i just uh, album placement a bit too uh, where, where it falls in the album and I, I do like one summer dream a little bit too uh which is the the close of the album but face the music yeah from from start to finish uh very very good one summer dream and strange magic both seem like things that could have been on el dorado which to me is a good thing but to jeff is just sign of uh is just the mark of satan uh or the mark <laughs> of the beast sign of cultural decay that, that's yeah, what yeah. It is. yes um and yeah, Evil Woman. Evil Woman owes a bit again. He, me being obsessed with El Dorado. Evil Woman owes a bit to uh, Nobody's Child on, on El Dorado, and also, I'll come back to this later. But Evil Woman prepares ELO for some funkier stuff down the line. But that's mm-hmm. all I'll say about that right now. <laughs> well, in, in my mind, if if uh, Face the Music is not the the peak of Electric Light Orchestra, it in fact is. 1976's A New World Record. Uh, this album from start to finish, it's uh, it's tougher for me to find missteps here than even on Face the Music. Starting with uh, with Tightrope, um, which is a, has this dramatic orchestral opening, and then you get this galloping rhythm toward the uh, to the rock portion of the song. Very hooky, bright pop song. I think a conscious effort to write some shorter, more pop-oriented songs on a new world record. The, the first appearance of the uh, the the space the ELO spaceship is on a new world record, and uh, and, and a couple of their just finest finest songs. Uh, I will attempt to tackle telephone line which to me is it's in my top five i i I think it's one of jeff lynn's crowning achievements uh telephone line begins with this ringing and uh, you would think for a uk band it would be you know the uk ringing but no it's the american phone ringing um and these echo drenched uh vocals as if someone's talking on the phone and of course you know hello how are you and then that's what i'd say and that that's when the normal vocals kick in uh, that's what I'd say if you just pick up the phone. Telephone line from start to finish. And, and going back to an Elton John comparison, um, telephone line to me is built a bit like Tiny Dancer in that there is so much tension before that first release of the chorus. And there's two verses, then that 
this marvelous pre-chorus before you get to the telephone line chorus of the song. Much like Tiny Dancer makes you wait for satisfaction, telephone line does too. And it, you, know, you get through the you know, the doo wop, dooby doo wops, just setting up the chorus perfectly. I, telephone line is one of Jeff Lynne's best compositions. Uh, I told you earlier that I never listened to ELO for the lyrics. Mm-hmm. This is the, the, the one time yeah. that the lyrics to this song actually made me stop and go back and hit the back button and pay attention because they really are moving. You know, you, you just. Consider this as a song in isolation. Don't think about it as Jeff Lynne or ELO or, you know, in, you know, in the continuum of, you know, 70s hit rock. Just think of it as a, as, as a, as a lyric itself. It's so powerful. That, that verse where it's like he says, okay, you know, so no one's answering. But can't you just let it ring a little longer, longer? I'll just sit tight through the shadows of the night. And then he's like, let it ring forevermore. Oh, that's like. Oh, I'm crying. That- it's really good. I was like, I didn't think that Jeff Lynne was capable of that. That's well, really powerful. I, I, and, and it's such a beautiful melody underneath it, too. Okay. So no one's answering. Well, can't you just let it ring a little longer, longer, longer? Oh, I'll just sit tight. The shadows of the night. Let it ring I agree with what both of you have been saying, and I, I can add some some depth here. I think, the, as the best as I can tell, this song was partly autobiographical. Jeff Lynne had an American girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and he was constantly touring as a as a successful '70s musician and constantly trying to reach her. So calling her uh, in America and and having trouble reaching her. I don't know how I couldn't f- find out how the relationship ended up going, but I think. The song is drawing from some personal details, which could explain why, sort of uniquely among most ELO stuff, the lyrics actually make you they affect you deeply. Um, but yeah, telephone line is great. I love telephone line. Um, were you were you done, Scott, in in well, uh, expounding the glory of telephone line? Uh, of telephone line, yes, yes. I, I, I wanted to mention from the deeper cut. So fine is a fantastic song. Um, which, again, is, a, is a, one of the peppier upbeats uh, of songs of the album. Again, featuring, I think, sort of like uh, Evil Woman, those those Philly soul strings, uh, at least the sound of kind of the Philly soul strings. But there's so much, again, in So Fine. Um, it's like Fire on High. There's so many moments. There's these woo-woos in the chorus. There's these African drums and, and moog uh, electronic percussion in the middle section that is rising in intensity until uh, you get the vocals again toward the tail end of the, end of the song.
the way that so fine segues right into another wonderful song, Living Thing, which they, they accomplished by just unplugging the tape machine uh, to, get, <laughs> to, get that to, to get that to fade just the way they wanted into Living Thing. Uh, I, I will let someone else talk about Living Thing since I, since I talk telephone line, but I will say uh, of all the big rock songs that ELO does, Duya is almost certainly my favorite. It's an old song. It's originally a, a song. It's by a the move movie. song. Yeah. And I yeah. knew the move song before yep. I'd ever heard this one, which I heard, as I said, I heard last week. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm so familiar with the moves version that I'm like, all right, well, I don't know. It's hard to let go of old things. But yeah, this is obviously a better version. It's I so mean, good. It, it, they were playing it live. And I, I guess they sort of they wanted to take ownership of it. You know, they wanted it to make it theirs on record as well. And it's just a great recording. Lynn uh, doesn't do it very often, but there's a very husky, aggressive vocal style uh, on Duya. And, uh, you know, the, the, the strings toward the middle and those kind of heavenly guitar notes Right to those crunching do your riffs and that one that's that one slide note, you know, that's probably my favorite, my favorite part of the song. Again, start to finish, very hard to find a misstep on a new world record. And some of Jeff Lynne's best, best writing is all over this record. Listen, I'll, I'll be very quick, and then I'll, and I'll let Jack take the wheel. Uh, I just will point out that, yes, this is a great album. It's not as good to me as Face the Music, because there are some songs on it that I'm less enthusiastic about uh, than I was on that, like Rakaria. Uh, everyone loves that. I'm only mediocre on it. And uh, I also wanted to point out that it's kind of silly that people later accused ELO of selling out and quote going disco <laughs> on on Discovery or yes. is it Disco Very or uh, the Xanadu soundtrack and all that when they're doing stuff like So Fine, which is just like yes, slap exactly. there into disco strings. It's like come on, I mean they were ahead of the game on that one and they were doing the same kind of like you know danceable you know four on the floor pea soup groove stuff that you know you would expect from disco long before they did Xanadu with Alluvian Newton. John. And, and by the way, I you know, kind of robustly defend some of that myself. So I, I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any problem with, with most of the songs on this record. It's just maybe just a slight cut below face the music for me. So Jack? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll focus in on the, the, the thing that you said that I disagree with the most first. <laughs> um, Rockeria, which I think I pronounced it that way for a while, but I think it's supposed to be pronounced rock aria, mm. like an opera aria. And so that's that's, a, that's what you get for discovering this music like a week ago. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not, I don't. I'm not trying to be a snob here, although that kind of is the point of the show, isn't it? Um, in some sense, but it's important that pronunciation is important because that's kind of literally what the song is—a rock aria. Like you have, it starts out with like an opera singer. Well, first, like deliberately messing up, and then right. 
singing and then a rocker coming in and the, the song is kind of like a it tells the story and the music tells it too so this is like this is one of the best examples of of music and lyrics in ELO's discography uniting to tell the same to convey the same thing it's like a back and forth between a rock musician and an opera musician and they they're kind of like fighting about whose music is better and then it ends with them sort of coming to terms on and agreeing that they can do things together and then that's literally what the song does too and I, I think that and the song is like three and a half minutes long so it gets all that in in that short amount of time she's sweet I won't fight there I think she's definitely over she loves the Again, this is this is the best. I think this is the peak of what I earlier called literal ELO. When it's electric light orchestra, you have almost literally the um, the rock and the orchestra alternating back and forth before they sort of reach a confluence at the end. And I, I think it's it's clever, and the, the the music and the lyrics both are unified in service of a theme in a, in a way that's uh, at the, near the peak of ELO's catalog. Um, I, I agree with what was said about Do Ya. I think it is better than the Moves version. Although I, I've read some some Move fans, and, and Jeff, I thought you were going to go here. Uh, I was like... tempted. It was going to be my hot take, but then I just had to like <laughs> concede to reality that the yeah, ELO one is better. Yeah, some 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 the Move some Move fans like uh, the Move version better because it's more raw. I mean, it, it, yeah, ELO at this point is like almost the definition of polished. Uh, in in terms of what they do to, to songs, so but I I still love Duya, Living Thing um, is another great song. I'm I'm fond of Shangri La. You, uh, Jeff, you said ELO's not good at album closing. I I think, nah. I, again, I think I'll 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 dissent here. I think Shangri La Shangri La starts out clunky, and it has some of the sort of slavish Beatles devotion that uh, ELO's critics fault them for, but. I think the the literal fade out of Shangri La is a is a beautiful another example of wistful Jeff Lynne. What's the use of changing things? And so fine is so fine. Uh, I had to say that the, the the pun was waiting, and neither and the, the the other two of you didn't take it, so I I've grabbed it for myself. 
Oh, that's because we're not lame, but you know. <laughs> wow, we're we're, we're gonna. I, I hope that we aren't at each other's throats by the end. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'll give you as many opportunities as possible to bust my chops. So don't be surprised if I take one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh. No, it's okay. I'm I'm glad to be here. That's this is what I'm all about. <laughs> I'm, I'm it's I've entered the fray. But listen, you know, it wouldn't be a a band that was devoted to the true spirit of the Beatles if they did not also themselves attempt an ambitious double album which brings us to out of the blue what do we say about 1977's out of the blue except i will still insist that the cover of that album it might be a flying saucer trying to dock with a with a little spaceship i don't know but come on it looks like that old board that that game simon, simon. that you used to play as a kid right you know you hit boop boop beep boop beep boop 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 beep, boop, boop. <laughs> that's what that is that's what elo truly is to me out of the blue is well it's 70 minutes worth of power pop that some people consider to be their greatest accomplishment some people consider to be soulless mush i come down a little in between but then again i'm the guy who just first heard this album three days ago <laughs> uh i'm so i used to this used to be my favorite i, I used to consider this my favorite elo album uh, mostly for the presence of um my favorite i'll just spoil that my my view of what my favorite yellow song is my favorite yellow song mr blue sky which is also paul mccartney's favorite uh which i guess shouldn't be a surprise to anyone In, in reviewing Elo's discography uh, again for in leading up to this uh, show, I'm, I'm a little less fond of it than I thought I was. I think some of the stuff on here sounds a bit dated, uh, and in a way that Elo's other music doesn't. Like especially the song "On the Border," the synth on "On the Border" sounds like I, I hear it and I, I think of like even though I wasn't alive at the time, I think of long gas lines i think i think of <laughs> high interest rates it just sounds like so late 70s to me remembering uh, things that you were till around yeah. for yeah, yeah so I, I have that same experience when listening to the 70s albums too. i remember yeah. listening to this when the malay speech was given <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i just some of the stuff yeah some of the stuff on here is listening to across the border makes me want to whip inflation now yeah, <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so some of the stuff on here is just is a little dated and it probably didn't need to be a double album i think this is you could do a like a i know this is heresy depending on the kind of beatles fan you are you could do it like a hypothetical out of the blue as one album here and not really it wouldn't be a devastating thing if that happened um but i again i love mr blue sky and turn to stone the album opener is just fantastic i i went back and forth on including that in my top five i ulti i ultimately did not include it there but it's just a great it's it's a great peak ELO song of the. It's just clearly Jeff knows exactly what he's doing with 
how much strings he wants to incorporate, how much versus how much uh, uh, rock, and it just invites the way the way that it specifically fades in. It just invites me into that album in a way that it, it ends up not being as justified for at some points. At other points, very much so. Um, and I, uh, the last thing I'll say about Out of the Blue is um, at least until the re- the other until you two speak of it, <laughs> and then I can disagree with what Jeff says. Um, is that I, I used to like ignore the song uh, stepping out. I didn't I didn't think the I thought this was another sort of dated seventies uh, artifact. But as I as I grow older, as I'm now twenty five and 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 my hair is starting to gray. No, it's not. It's not graying. But I am thinking about things, and I hope a little more mature way. And I I, I find the lyrics to stepping out to be a little more affecting than I used to be. I, I they're, they're they speak to transition and to change and to. Uh, new things, but having to say goodbye to old things, and in, in a way that I, I guess I didn't appreciate when I was when I was younger in my in my foolish days, which I hope I'm out of by now. <laughs> um, so that's that's out of the blue. I'm and a concerto for a rainy day, which Mr. Blue Sky uh, concludes, is 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 good. It's it, it's kind of. I mean, I guess you can say that it's kind of boring just to write a whole four songs about. The sun Rain. coming out, <laughs> but <laughs> bad weather, right? Yeah, yeah but it, it's they're they're interesting songs. They don't bore me, even though they're about a like a they're just about rain. And literally, that's what inspired them. Jeff Lynne was stuck inside his house because it was raining. Um, but it, it, Jeff Lynne's at the point when the band's at the point where they can make even that interesting. Yeah, he could write it. He could be writing about clipping his toenails at this point. But I'll throw in that pop hook that'll get a top twenty radio play. My, my my feeling about Out of the Blue is that uh, it, it suffers from the classic curse that double albums, most double albums suffer from, which is that you have three sides of a good record, but not enough for four. Is that that thing where you've written too much good music, but <laughs> not enough to justify the double album. So like, I think the entire last part of this record from like, was it Sweet as the Night? to the end i don't really know if there's much there like what a wild west hero that's just literally he probably wrote that like automatic writing in his sleep but there's just no there's nothing there you could you drop that one out when he's sitting on the john it's so simple uh the way well, he's uh at least he's moved from being obsessed with being a southerner to being obsessed with being a cowboy <laughs> well no but they're all kind of go hand in hand from yeah. i don't think jeff lynn has a perfectly good understanding of the differences between the american south and the american west <laughs> that's I think, probably true i think he thinks that they all just come together in a place called Texas, which is where that whole Laredo thing comes from with him. Uh, but I, 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 I think that there are, th- first of all, the other thing to notice about Out of the Blue is that like all of the, the old, truly weird proggy stuff is just now gone completely. This is power pop with lots of string elements in it but the, the you know even the concerto which which jack just talked about which i think is the best part of this album i think all four songs on that are great yeah. uh that's not a concerto in any real sense it's just four songs that go together um but i do want to praise that i i mean i think mr blue sky a song i had literally people kept talking to me on Twitter saying, like, what? You've never heard Mr. Blue Sky? Mr. Blue Sky, that's a great ELL song. Hey, you should check out Mr. Blue Sky. You'll know that one for sure. I'd never heard this song. I didn't know it from Adam until like four days ago. It's an amazing thing. And I think the thing that I like the most about it is the ending part 
is the ending instrumental where it suddenly like I literally when I was listening to it I had to go back to my track listing and say did, did we just move to the right. next track yeah. is that a different song no it's the same song but it's so powerful I love that instrumental play out to Mr. Blue Sky But I like the rest of it. I love Standing in the Rain, which has to be the most bombastic and dramatic song about standing in the rain <laughs> I have ever heard. <laughs> As Jack points out, it's like otherwise you know, kind of a kind of a mundane experience. But <laughs> but no, I love that song too. another kind of like gentle sappy ballad but it works i think the weakest of the four is probably summer and lightning but i they're all great i think that the first part of the, the album is also pretty good too i don't i don't really have anything terrible to say about this until the end when i just feel like yeah you know you had three good sides and then you had to put some extra stuff on to justify the double album and it's a short double album too it's only 70 minutes it's like an exile on main street double record um i think that the obvious highlights are the ones that I that I already pointed out. Blue Sky, Standing in the Rain. Turn to Stone actually has never been a huge favorite of mine, you know, of all these that we've gone through. I've listened to it several times because people pointed it out to me. I don't love it. I think It's Over is a much better song, mm-hmm. which is the one that right follows it right after. It's yeah, over. I've always wondered why It's Over is the second song on the album. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, yeah, yeah, exactly. Most of the last song, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great song. And it should have ended this record instead of Wild West Hero. It's over, it's over, all over, it's all over now. And the way you 
Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of people say it's the the end of their true great years. I don't buy that for a second because I hear a lot of continuity between this and what comes next. But Scott, how about you? Um, you know, you see one rainbow and you're like, that's amazing. That uh, Man, how did it even happen? And uh, those bright colors. That's so cool. You don't really know when it's going to happen again. If there were rainbows uh, every day uh, on every corner, you wouldn't find it so amazing. That's kind of my out-of-the-blue experience, which is tonally, it becomes very bland because everything is produced, hyper-produced yeah. with these similar-sounding tones, uh-huh. very bright, very sweet. And so it's it's um, it just sort of mashes together in a lot of ways. That's not to say there's not good... If you hear one of these songs isolated... It's great when you put 17 or whatever it is together. I don't know if it works quite as well. Um, I, I have whole sorts of notes on, on a few of these songs. Turn to Stone, I actually like a lot. And one of the things about going back through the uh, the ELO, ELO discography is you find all these more recent bands that are heavily influenced by Jeff Lynne and ELO. One of them is uh, uh, the New Pornographers, which is one of my favorite bands of the past 20 years or so. They have a song called Use It, which is like, 85% turn to stone. You know, the DNA is, is right in turn to stone uh, for usage from the, the new pornographers. Holy crap, you're right. Yeah. See, you're right. Every I now and then. Because I never heard her turn to stone until this week. <laughs> but yes, it's absolutely true. That's a really good, that's a really good connection. <laughs> And then Sweet Talking Woman, which I don't think anyone had mentioned yet. Sweet Talking Woman's a very good song. It was one of the singles. It's a very Bee Gees-esque feel to it. But um, Mutt Lang, the very famous Mutt Lang, just stole Sweet Talking Woman from ELO, changed the lyrics around, and then handed it to Huey Lewis for Do You Believe in Love? You know, I've been living, yeah. living, I've been walking, walking. Um, very, very similar songs. You guys both talked about It's Over, and I agree. That's a fantastic song. And on an album as well you know, precisely produced as Out of the Blue, It's Over might be the best produced song on the record. Listen to everything going on between Tandy's uh, piano, uh, synths, backing vocals, acoustic guitar. You can hear the drums and the cymbals and the cello. It's all just perfectly placed on on It's Over. Uh, Night in the City, I think, is a good song. Um, later on, I, I, I want to sell Jeff on Sweet is the Night, which is on uh, side four, which he is uh, not a fan of. I think Sweet is the Night is a really, really good song. He's got a huge chorus to it. 
Uh, Lynn, again, kind of adjusting his delivery, almost has a Dylan-esque delivery for uh, Sweet as the Night. Starts with this kind of doo-wop melody before it gets to the first verse. It's the uh, call and response vocals, which are all over Olive Blue. I think Sweet is the Night is actually one of the better songs on uh, on the record. Somewhere in Lightning, which um, is in that concerto for a rainy day, I, I like uh, too. Very breezy melody, good harmonies, nice strings. Um, about halfway through, there, there's these layered vocals, and, and just underneath that are these strings playing a counter melody that is really just sublime. It's just a really nice part of the song. Um, Out of the blue is again. Uh, I think reputation-wise, might be the the most well-known. It, it got you know the deluxe reissue a few years back, and. But I, I think the previous two albums are better. And again, as an album, I don't think it works better. You know, the, it, this is one of the cases where the whole doesn't work as well as some of the parts. Uh, individual songs, I yeah, think, I work spectacularly. Yeah, yeah. Your point about it all sounding the same production-wise is just so good. It's so accurate. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, it, it, it runs together because it, it, it's all done in that incredibly immaculate style that <laughs> begins to sort of efface the differences and the qualities of yeah. some of these songs. Individually, they're all great. And yet, as I, as I mentioned, too, hugely, hugely influential for the photographers were Mutt Lang for a band like uh, uh, like Apples and Stereo, which I, I like a lot. All of them took massive cues from Out of, out of the Blue. So now we talk about the, what what is, I was told, I was warned in advance, is the great betrayal of the electric light orchestra career. <clears throat> the moment they lost their souls, the moment they sold out, the moment they gave into the demon capitalism and made a disco album and I don't buy it for a second. The name of this album is Discovery, or people think it's a pun. It probably is. Disco Very. Um, this is their 1979 record. Uh, people affect, at least, you know, people who I talk to, what I mentioned, we'd be doing ELO saying, you know, and especially because I said, well, what is the one song that I know from this record, from ELO's career is Don't Bring Me Down? It's like, that song's terrible. That's, that's nowhere near the best ELO song you know, they've ever done. And that album is terrible, too. And so I, when I got to this, I was thinking it was going to be something really, really bad, like, you know, Elton John doing Leather jackets or you know <laughs> you know like you know queen doing hot space or something like that but no i think this album is perfectly in keeping with everything they had done before are there some more disco touches on it sure but guess what we just talked about out of the blue with uh you know with the uh, sweet talking woman yeah we, we just talked about like uh, so fine or even evil woman i mean they've always had those kinds of touches and the use of strings for frick 
freaking Christ's sake, this is electric light orchestra. No duh, they're going to be using some disco-like strings. What? That's what they're there for. So I don't get that objection to Discovery. By the way, you know, Jack, you're the big fan. How do I pronounce the title of this album? Oh, you can you you can say Discovery. I don't say Discovery. Um, right. There was I think Bevan had had sort of made that popular. Be- Bevan, the drummer, was the one who kind of said, "Yeah, Discovery. It's Discovery." All right. Well, I'm glad to know it. But I think this is this is not noticeably worse than uh, Out of the Blue for me. And uh, I'll tell you the one that I really like. And uh, boy, this just you sound so stupid saying this out loud. This is a sentence that nobody can say, not even Brad Pitt can say, and not sound uncool. I really love the Diary of Horace Wimp. <laughs> I yep. think it's a great song. I, <laughs> let me let me make you feel a little less alone, and also say I love the Diary of Horace. Wimp. Thank you. So we can Thank be losers you. together. Thank you. I really love that song. Everybody's at the church when Horace rushes in and says, Now here comes my wife. For the rest of my life. And she did. Don't be afraid. Just knock on the door. Well, he just stood there mumbling and fumbling. disco cuts last train to london sure you know get out on the dance floor to that one and i did say earlier that elo doesn't know how to close their albums with really great songs but listen i don't care what other people say about it don't bring me down stupid chorus lyrics though it is dumb as a rock that song jams all right that song is like it's undeniable the way that song grooves from the like the counting you can hear them counting in quite you know over you know the pump of the of the drums that's a good song there's just no getting around the fact that it has earned its ubiquity (laughs) i i just don't think this is a terrible album i guess as the as the elo fan here i'm i'm supposed to or I'm supposed to represent the like conventional fan wisdom on viewing Discovery as a betrayal, but I I agree, thankfully, so that we can we can tone down the conflict between the two of us here with <laughs> with basically everything Jeff said. I don't ELO was this is not a huge leap. There are other bands of the time who made a leap to disco and made fools of themselves, uh, but ELO had been basically prepping themselves for this kind of music for a while. It was not. It was a pretty logical extension of what they'd been doing. They don't sound terrible doing it. Uh, and moreover, there's stuff in here that would not seem out of place on, certainly not on Out of the Blue, and maybe even even on uh, an album one or two back. Uh, Diary of Horace Wimp is a great example of, like, you, you throw that on Out of the Blue to, like, take out the, the last, um, for, the fourth side of Out of the Blue and uh, replace it with some of the songs on here. And then you maybe you'll have your, your perfect double album for once. But... Diary of Horace Wimp is one of those. Uh, Wishing is another one that sounds like out of the blue ELO. The, really, the two, I guess the two songs that get people convinced of the betrayal are um, Last Train to London, mm. which is, yeah, it's disco. <laughs> uh, no, one's, no one denies that. And the album opener, yes. um, Shine a Little Love, okay. which are, yeah, they're both. You can 
you can hear them and start thinking like oh disco you start thinking of long gas lines again uh but i think they're fun they're they're again elo was sort of ready to do disco more than other bands of the time they they had already worked with strings they'd already combined strings and rock before they already had music that was fun and then propulsive and dancey and this is just really it's not an egregious sellout uh i don't think it's been a year now Which is like, I know that's not like exactly high praise, but I still I still like this album. It's not as good as uh, Face the Music or A New World Record, but it's it's fine. I don't think ELO's really like dying at this point. They're they're, they're yeah, they, they don't sound like they've lost the plot at all, right? No, yeah, no. I, it's it's again following my my point on the typical or the you know predictable career path. It is decline right from from the heights, but there were there were high heights. There's. Uh, I, I hate to sound like a broken record. There's, there's nothing wrong with Discovery. Even the disco songs, uh, as uh, as uh, Jack mentioned, "Shine a, a Little Love," the very first song. Yeah, that's that's pretty four on the floor right there. But it sounds like it's a it's a natural outgrowth of what they were doing. It's not out of left field. It's not all that strange. And they're not terrible songs. Um, you know, if we're grading on a disco curve, or they're they're not bad songs. Um, I like "On the Run." on Discovery quite a bit. Very bouncy, catchy melody. Um, confusion is not bad. Um, Jeff Lynne every now and then slips into like this, not just Beatles worship, but Phil Spector worship too. And there's a, there's yeah. a certain Phil Spector sound on Confusion. I read, he wrote, he said he wrote Confusion because he got a new synth and I wrote it down, a Yamaha CS80. And so Confusion is just an excuse to give the old Yamaha CS80 a workout. But uh, I like that. on Don't Bring Me Down, which again is uh, perhaps their best known just because it is played constantly on classic rock radio stations. You know, th- those heavily processed looped drums on Don't Bring Me Down uh, actually are the drums from On the Run. And they are simply oh. looped and slowed and distorted for Don't Bring Me Down. Don't Bring Me Down is basically all Jeff Lynn. All Jeff Lynn. Um, and uh, I'm sure people well, I shouldn't say I'm sure people know the story. They probably don't. But you know, Don't Bring Me Down what do people say? Uh, Bruce, right? What's, what's he shouting? Bruce. Uh, he's not. He's actually shouting Groose, which he believed, Jeff Lynne believed, was a made-up word. And he later said he there was a German engineer, because they were recording in Munich, I believe. 
And the German engineer said, how did you know that word? Uh, Gruß is actually a German word meaning, I can't remember what it means now, but it's a German word. He said, all right, great. So he'd go and play uh, Don't Bring Me Down on the, on the road, and all the people in the crowd would sing along and shout, Don't Bring Me Down, Bruce. And so at some point, Lynn said, well, forget this. And he also started singing along Bruce instead of Gruß. So if you go to see ELO on tour this summer, he actually is saying Bruce. I had just assumed that it was a reaction to the, to the darkness and negativity of Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen after, <laughs> after the joyous highs of Born to Run. And he was just saying, come on, get off the floor. I'm tired of this whole, like, you know, Badlands crap. No, uh, I have no Stay idea. The Springsteen episode, come on. I, I, <laughs> I also think uh, Don't Bring Me Down is the very first song that ELO did with no strings whatsoever. I could be wrong. I think Lynn alluded to it in the interview, and he was explaining at one point the reason he stopped using strings in one, at least one major reason, is because they were just terrible to deal with. Um, they, were, they were all part of the union, and so they would play up until the very second they were supposed to stop, even if they were still work to be done. They're like, all right, time's up. We gotta go. And he's like, I, I hated dealing with them, and so that's one of the reasons he said that's why, why, he that's why you gotta strings. be like Arcade Fire and, and make the string members actually part of the band. That's right. Because <laughs> yes. otherwise, hands. yeah, you're right. They're, you know, they're, on, they're on union time, and they're, and they're gonna just, you know, you'll, you'll fob off down to the pub when they're done, no yeah, matter but, what you want. So they the, must uh, have made... Uh, when 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 Jeff Lynn was doing that song, that must have been like when uh, like the auto the, the auto plant workers where the their their foreman is showing them the new machine that they're installing. Yeah. Like uh oh, that's going to make them redundant. It's being replaced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they would be replaced uh, by time. But, but before we get to the the next uh, ELO, well, does anybody want to talk about the greatest disco yeah. musical ever made? Xanadu. <laughs> this is the the greatest roller skate disco album. <laughs> Musical extravaganza, I think, probably in the history of, you know, recorded history of mankind. I, I, I certainly can't think of anyone that tops it. Um, <laughs> well, when, when, you, when you slice, when you get enough categories in, you, you, you don't end up having to fight against many other things. So here, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Xanadu. Okay, for people who don't know, this was, this was a movie, uh, a musical, uh, a roller skate disco musical movie. Yes, everybody was just doing so much cocaine in the late 70s. 70s this kind of thing speak uh, for yourself <laughs> right yeah I was I, I was I was obviously doing uh, cocaine as a fetus at, at that time myself but uh no it's starring Olivia Newton-John who at that point was like one of the biggest pop stars on the planet and uh who who decided to team up with Olivia Newton-John I don't know enough about either her or ELO to understand how this pairing came to be. Maybe one of you guys does. But yes, Electric Light Orchestra and Olivia Newton-John, two great flavors that taste very weird together. <laughs> come together for Xanadu. And the album itself was just a massive success. This is the thing. Everybody makes fun of the film, but everybody wants to sort of erase the fact that Xanadu, the album, was like number two in the U.S. charts for yeah. weeks. It was like five top 20 hits, I think. Five top 20 hits. Not just Olivia Newton-John had hits on this. ELO had big hits from this. And I gotta tell you, having heard none of these i don't like the title tra I, I didn't listen to the olivia newton john stuff on the first side because it wasn't it wasn't you know it's not relevant to yeah it's not elo who cares it's not elo go watch um, grease if you want more olivia newton john exactly you know and if you want some michelle pfeiffer try grease too that's right um uh, but 
The second half is all ELO. The, the Olivia Newton-John duet on the title track is the last song the album Xanadu. That's the one song I don't like, but I gotta tell you, man, the other four songs on this, they're pretty good. It's like, I'm Alive, that's a great song. <laughs> it is a really good pop song. It sounds just like the stuff on Discovery. That sounds just like something you'd have heard on Out of the Blue. And all over the world, that is another one of their big hit singles. That's another fine song, too. treats this album as a punchline nobody wants to remember that you know hey there's some good stuff on it yeah i enjoyed the bombast of it i like i'm alive i'm I'm particularly fond of i'm alive because i and i hope by saying this i don't end up like alerting youtube to his to its presence but there's a there's a hilarious uh montage of uh star trek red shirts dying on youtube set to the song i'm alive oh my god i have to see that now um, that's gonna be great so it, it, it's it yeah these these songs the yellow songs in xandu are fine i don't they're they're not yellow sellouts or anything but I, I sort of resent that this is what ended up being the the commercial peak of yellow like this is probably this may have been like at least contemporaneously like the most exposure they got and this is what they ended up being of it like i wish that Everyone would have gotten to know like uh, a New World Record era ELO and not not Xanadu era ELO. But I mean, <laughs> if you're if the band you like is being successful, you shouldn't complain. So I think I'm Alive was part of a maybe a pop up video episode on VH1. I, I know that I I have seen and heard I'm Alive more than once, and I've never seen the film uh, Xanadu. Uh, shockingly, so I'm pretty sure I'm Alive was part of it. I don't think it was like a Beavis and Butthead, but it was like a, I think a pop up video where there was some fun being had at the expense of ELO and Olivia Newton John. Uh, you've seen you've seen Flash Gordon, oh, yeah. with the Queen soundtrack, but you haven't seen Xanadu. That's true. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a shame. We'll have Scott. to correct that at some point. <laughs> uh, political beat. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Jack Butler with us today. We talk electric light orchestra and we enter the 80s, guys, with uh, an album that uh, in some parts is really beloved, especially in the sci-fi community, I found as I did a little research, uh, because it is another concept album from ELO called time uh in a in a in a man who has time traveled to 2095 listening to this i was wondering if this is this is where matt graining got the idea for futurama quite frankly because it's, it sounds very similar to me <laughs> to me to me it sounds like the moody blues and electric light orchestra started off in the same place they, they flipped a coin they shook hands and they decided to go in different directions through time so on the one <laughs> end you get to our children's children's children and on the other end you get time <laughs> like, you know, 
where uh, they uh, famously, and I just laughed so much at this, you know, they, they sing a rhapsody to how much they wish it was still 1981. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, you know, buddy, I wish it was 1981 too. I'd be six months old, man, and I would be loving life. You know, I've got everything ahead of me. And by the way, the first thing I want to say about time, a lot of people push this one on me on Twitter when I mentioned we would be doing ELO. And I say they're half right, I think, because I think half of this album is actually really good. The first half in particular is really good. And then the second half of this album kind of goes downhill. And I just don't think that there's enough music on it to sustain it. But um, Twilight, I think, may make my top five at the end. I'm still hmm. finalized. I think that's a great pop song. The one that really jumps out to me, though, is The Way Life's Meant to Be. I quoted it right up at the front yeah, of the show. One. That's another Phil Spector one. What would you say? It's another Phil Spector influenced one. Well, it's funny you say Phil Spector because I'll tell you what exactly it sounds like to me is, uh, and, and, and I noticed that Jack mentioned this earlier that what was Jeff Lynne's other major influence? It wasn't just the Beatles. Oh, yes, yes. It was Roy Orbison, and my God, I listened to this and I laughed because, but that is a Roy Orbison song by any other name. When he gets to the, he even has some of that trembly voice, you know, that that classic Roy Orbison tremolo in his voice, and uh, when he hits that chorus, I just thought to myself, yeah, this this. If you could just omit the part about being a time traveler and uh, you know wishing that he was living in the year 1981, I could hear this in Roy's mouth. And so, yeah. it's no surprise that he goes on to you know produce half the stuff on uh, Mystery Girl, you know, a couple of years down the road. Oh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a Roy Orbison got assimilated by the Borg. Yeah. <laughs> <or something. Yeah. laughs> it's a great song. I think it's great. As I wander around. Wreck of a town where people never speak aloud. With its ivory towers and its plastic flowers, I wish I was back in 1981. Just to see your face instead of this place. Now I know what you mean to me. Ooh. And I wonder, yes, I wonder. I think time so time is a fascinating like I did not like arguably at this point ELO is like it's commercial peak if not it's artistic peak and it's just a fascinating choice for by Lynn to go back and make another concept album mm -hmm. uh, and I, I I like this album it's the, the, the story he, he hits you a bit uh, more over the head with the story than than he did on uh, El Dorado um, which bothers me at some points like uh, like what Jeff was saying about the part that he would excise from the song, that's kind of the most awkward. And any, any other point in the album where he's like awkwardly saying, oh yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, uh, here's what's happening in the story right now. Also, oh, by the way, now here's the song. Um, but yeah, it is the, the way life's meant to be is a great song. I, I'm a big fan of, um, another heart breaks, which is the, mm. another great ELO instrumental. Although this time no strings, no strings on, well, actually there are a little bit of strings on this album, but I, I the band members who played, string instruments are now are gone right. from the band yeah
I, yeah, and as a as a I am a Jeff, I think you said that the sci-fi community loves this album. I will I will out myself as a member of the sci-fi <laughs> community and and having a love of this album. I'm obsessed with time travel and that my favorite band did an al- a concept album based on my one of my favorite sci-fi concepts is just it's almost too much for me. Uh, and sometimes this album does get to be a bit too much. Um, not a huge fan of uh, Hold On Tight. I don't th- I don't think it really makes sense. It, it, for one thing, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't conclude the album in any in any uh, in any concrete way. Like hold on tight to what? It's a fine rock song. I mean, it just it betrays uh, Lynn's childhood rock obsessions. But yeah, tw- uh, Twilight is also great. I agree with what Jeff said there, and I, I and I still don't think that ELO at this point has really lost its uh, it factor. I think it, it's fat, despite like completely abandoning their roots. Uh, and and going full in on synth synthesizers, I, I don't. I think Jeff still knows what he's doing uh, at this point, and I don't think the album is really suffering from the true decline at this point. That that com- that's that comes later. It's it's coming soon, but we're not there yet. So I, I guess I'm a little more down on time than both of you. It it's somewhat pleasant to listen to. I I got to tell you, for me, it's a bit of a depressing listen because the the narrator here. All he wants to do is get back to 1981. So it's it's a concept about being in the future, but only wanting the past. So for me, that's a, it's, a, it's kind of a weird listen because so many of these songs are about trying to get back and get back and get back. And then you add to that uh, the increased youth of synthesizers, which is fine in and of itself. But I think they become a little cold and icy on a few of these tracks, uh, like from, from the end of the world. Um, I think another heartbreaks. I, I don't really like the synth synth tone on that one either. Uh, yours truly, twenty ninety five. I my notes I have outtake from Kilroy was here, so I think that's a bad thing. I don't think I like that song <laughs> oh, so much. Dude, did you just compare ELO to Sticks? That's that's <laughs> that's the unkindest cut of all. But the, there are some some uh, like Twilight. Jeff said Twilight's a really good way to start off the album. Really good. Uh, I do like the way life's meant to be, which uh, Jeff spent some time on. Um, Rain is falling has a very Beatles flavor to it, and hold another on. rain song. <laughs> yes, yes, and hold on tight, which uh, Jack doesn't like. I think it's fine. It's fine, but I must mention if you if you can get to YouTube and everyone's connected these days, man, oh man, you go check out those Coffee Achiever ads from uh, 1983 <laughs> and 1984. You know, these days, of course, you wouldn't dream of this because everyone has you know 17 cups of coffee a day, and there's a Starbucks or a something on every corner. But I guess in the early 80s, coffee was was in trouble, so you have a public awareness campaign that you know what you need some coffee so you've got people like former Bengals quarterback ken anderson you've got ann and nancy wilson from heart you've got david bowie kurt vonnegut yes all these people telling you how great coffee is and you should have it while you're mixing your album or performing on stage or acting or doing what you know watching game film from the 1983 cincinnati Bengals season and hold on tight is the is the theme is is the music used for the coffee achiever ads and they're worth the view so uh if nothing else time brought us the the fine fusion of elo and coffee wow that's high praise (laughs) i guess (laughs) so from there we um we get a couple of years again between releases and uh, i I know jack mentioned he thought that time uh, elo was still still had things together i'm not sure how he feels about uh, 
kind of these next two albums. The, the first one, Secret Messages, which again would bring back some backmasking in a few of these tracks, the, the Secret Messages. Uh, originally meant to be a double album. I, I am very thankful the label talked uh, Jeff Lynn into only one because I don't know if I'd make it through two. Um, you begin to hear, at least I do, the very processed 80s sounds of some of the production, which uh, which doesn't do the songs a lot of favors. I only have a few things um, written down from, from this album, guys. One is the single that people might know was Rock and Roll is King, which is not a great song, but I mention it because Jeff Lynne had now begun, and we'll get to this in a second, his kind of second life as a producer. He, he did some ELO stuff, of course, but now doing some outside producing. And who's the guy he's producing right around the time Secret Messages is made? It's Dave Edmonds. And so I think as much as Jeff Lynn influenced uh, the albums he would produce in the years to come, I think actually Dave Edmonds is a big influence on Rock and Roll is King. It's a very, very Dave Edmonds-esque uh, song on Secret Messages. Uh, I like Bluebird pretty well. Again, a kind of another uh, Beatles, uh, not a ripoff, but homage. We'll call them homages. Uh, Danger Ahead is another one that basically has, I uh, mentioned uh, the new pornographers earlier with Turn to Stone. Danger Ahead is like uh, another flip side where, you know, probably half of the new pornographer songs, their DNA comes from Danger Ahead. You have these big, big, chunky recurring riffs, beautiful harmony vocals, kind of a synthy middle part. Uh, it's one of the more up-tempo songs you'll hear about the apocalypse, so it's got that going for it. And I also wanted to mention Letter from Spain, which might be one of the plainest songs that ELO ever put together. You really have, for my ears, two synths and some and some little backing vocals and, and then Jeff Lynne, and that's about it. Very simple for ELO, but I think, at least in the, uh, in the environment of being included on Secret Messages, very effective. I, I like Letter from Spain. I think secret messages this and we'll see what jack says this is where the plot really begins to be lost for a jeff lynn and elo agreed i'm no fan of this album i'm i have really it's sort of a it's hard for me to say much good about what's on here uh, i'm not a fan of rock and roll's king the hit the last really the last big elo hit um Bluebird is fine. Bluebird is interesting because ELO has another song uh, on on the third day called "Bluebird Is Dead." So I'm I'm I've always sort of wondered if there's a connection between those songs, but I have no time, idea. What time traveled be. again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Bluebird is fine. Uh, the only the only thing I, I can say really about this album generally is that one, one thing people might not notice when listening to it is there's a sort of undercurrent of of sadness and loss in some of the lyrics. Um, like take me on and on is again is a good example of wistful Jeff Lynn coming back. Uh, the song "Stranger" is I don't really know exactly what it's about, but I I think it's about 
again, leaving your the things that you're familiar with and, and going off to do something you don't know with someone you don't know. Um, and this is like earlier ELO, uh, like El Dorado ELO, uh, ELO was much better at uh, texture and atmosphere in an album. Mm-hmm. And if 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 this were still that ELO, there would have that that message of of sadness and loss would have been much more pronounced, but only it, it ends up being sort of lost because most, most people don't really pay attention to it because this album is just not very good. Um, that's, that's all I really have to say about it. I'm, <laughs> I, it's not to the point where I, I'm come, I don't want to acknowledge that it exists, which is, uh, how I feel about the next album, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of, it makes me sad. Maybe this is just me projecting onto the album, how I feel about it because, at this point, I know that the the ELO I know and love is 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 fading away, like the Beatles on Hey Jude, um, and they they won't be coming back. So, well, the the other the thing is that Hey Jude is one of the greatest songs ever recorded. And I, I oh think, yeah, I uh, I don't think we're going to say that about anything on Secret Messages. So, that, so, that was a that was a lyric. that was a reference to yeah. um, Shangri La. That's what Jeff Lynne says. Uh, <laughs> When yeah. he says, uh, "My Shangri-La has gone away, fading like the Beatles on Hey Jude," um, I I know, I know, I know. But I, I I think here's the funny thing about the drop off from this album uh, between this one and Time is that there are songs on Time. I literally, you know, I thought there there are two songs on Time that I could include at the end of the show in my top five. There is nothing on this album that I would even. Thing, or any of the subsequent ones that I would think of including. And then you wonder, well, why did they fall off the cliff? I don't think it was because of, like, you know, the production ticks or lost inspiration. I think it was generally because Jeff Lynne kind of lost interest in doing this anymore. I think he, he decided that it was more fun to be a producer, to hang out with all these cool people that he'd always admired. And, wow, I can even produce their albums. I, I, I've got a really cool gig going here on the side. And that, that again, just like ELO was a side project from the move that became their main gig. Producing for Jeff Lynne was a side project that became his main gig. And that's that's what the difference between Secret Messages and Time is really about. And, uh, yeah, there's just nothing here. I mean, what is it? Scott said Letters from Spain. I think that's okay. That's like the only thing that I might actually single out. But the rest of this is just a mess. Okay, does anyone feel differently about the next one, Balance of Power? Uh, this is the last I've one. I've never before. even heard of this album. I don't know what you're so, talking about. Yeah, what album? I we, say, should we listen to it now? I want to say two things very quickly. One is that perhaps one of the things that uh, is noteworthy is some of the production cues that Jeff Lynne would carry over into his work, which we'll, we'll talk about in, in a moment, it, are found here on Balance of Power. There's a song called So Serious. Uh, second track on the album, which uh, outside of the very programmed electronic 80s drums, there's a lot of production stuff that you'd see uh, uh, up again on Traveling Wilburys and Patty and, and, and George Harrison. And there was one final top 40 hit, which I don't think is awful. And I'm not telling you it's good, but it's not awful. It's called Calling America. And it's almost a, uh, a, a telephone line take two, very similar theme to the lyrics. And it's just, uh, it's kind of cookie cutter, ELO by this point, which, I mean, if you can picture a 1985, 86 ELO song with synths and upbeat and Jeff, Le- that's what it is. So there's nothing special about it, but it's not, it's not terrible. It's not terrible if you want to give it a chance.
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, Jack, you have 30 minutes to talk about balance <laughs> of power. Go. Oh gosh, um, I'll, I'll 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 chop off that zero <laughs> instead. Um, I wish this album didn't exist. Uh, if I had the time machine that the people in the future uh, in the album Time had, I would go back in time and prevent this album from ha- ever happening. Um, but then we wouldn't. Then this. Then we wouldn't be able to talk about it. So I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's fine. I agree that calling America is 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 not terrible. Um, I I just there's just there's things on here that kind of make me mad. Like an ELO <laughs> song should not have a power ballad sax solo. Yes, that's terrible. But that's um, what getting to the point has. Like when sorrow, I, when I first, sorrow I only, about to fall. That's the one. The massive sax solo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, when, when I first listened to this album, like all the way through, I don't think I had actually listened to it just from beginning to end uh, before, uh, like a month ago or so. It, it it was a recent thing, and I had heard some of the songs on here, but not all of them. And I, I just so much of it just made me like, oh, Jeff, why, why are you doing this? Uh, <laughs> even and even uh, Jeff, our Jeff, not this Jeff. Um, <laughs> He even goes back to that well of being inexplicably obsessed with the American South slash West. I mean, he ends with this bizarre, like, synth hoedown uh, song, uh, Send It. Send It. Oh, Jesus. What is this thing? I don't know. It's like, I mean, Emerson, the other, Emerson Lake and Palmer, not ELP, not ELO, did a much better version of this when they did. I love hoedown. Hoedown is great. that's a great song. That's just Aaron Copeland, though. But yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, but this, this that's is not what I want to hear. This is this is not that. Yeah, this is not that. And really, calling America is the only thing I can even say not bad things about. Sorry, sorry, Jeff Lynn. I hope this doesn't <laughs> get me kicked out of the fan club. I mean, Jeff Jeff Lynn is a subscriber to the Political Beats podcast. He, oh, geez, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> he may be contacting you sometime <laughs> in the near future. I suppose this is the nominal end of ELO's career. I think Zoom. I don't. Does anybody really count Zoom? Is is it a Jeff Lynn album or is it an ELO album? I don't know. I don't think of it as an ELO album. Uh, but you guys might disagree with me in that. But I think that this is probably the point where instead of talking about that we should talk about what jeff lynn did went on to do which is he became the producer to the stars 1986 the year of the last terrible elo album is the year he's producing cloud nine for george harrison which is george harrison's big comeback album it's the one that has the title track most famously it has gotten my mind set on you it's a pretty good album um then of course he went on to produce tom petty when Tom Petty was kind of recovering from the wreckage of the Heartbreakers and trying to find his way, and he basically jump-started Petty's career again with Full Moon Fever. And helped, and to, helped, to, helped to co-write those, too, by the way. I mean, free, he co-wrote Free Fallen and I Won't Back Down, which are... Dude, I didn't even remember massive. that. Yeah, yeah, which are amazing. Those are iconic songs. And then, of course, most importantly, right around the time of Full Moon Fever, he was just, you know, hanging around. I guess they're all sitting around in some mansion in Los Angeles, you know, drinking Must a Nice. smoking a spliff and who, who was jeff lynn hanging out with he was hanging out with george harrison his friend and you know hey you know here's george's old friend bob dylan comes on over and then hey you know hey roy orbison's in town and hey you know you're, you're tom petty george harrison jeff lynn 
Bob Dylan, they decide, you know what, why don't we just get together for a laugh and record an album, and that's Traveling Wilburys Volume 1, which we have already discussed because <laughs> we did this on our Tom Petty episode, yeah. but man, that's a great album. That is a great album that came out of nowhere that is just so wonderful and unpretentious. It's all these rock superstars, but they're just not making a big deal out of it. They're having fun with it. Fantastic record that uh, then leads into Lynn's work for Roy Orbison because you know they're all big fans of Roy, and that's Mr. Mystery Girl, which is just another fantastic album, a posthumous album. I believe it was recorded in 1988, but not released until 1989, right after Roy had just died of a heart attack while out on the road. No one can do the thing you do. Anything you want, you got it. Anything you need, you got it. My God, you know, the title track alone, She's a Mystery to Me, which is, uh, I think, actually written by Bono and The Edge. That's magnificent. The Lynn produced songs on that album are magnificent. Uh, he just, just started this streak of just doing these really wonderful albums for other artists when he wasn't recording himself. I wonder if you guys have any comments on Jeff Lynn as a producer. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm sure you're getting to this, but really Jeff Lynn's career as a producer culminated in, in basically getting his dreams to come true <laughs> with being selected as the producer for the Beatles anthology project with the Threedles, uh, as has already been mentioned. <laughs> and I mean, he, he turned and in that role, he turned two like songs that were John Lennon outtakes preserve, like very badly preserved into like songs that you, are a legitimate part of the Beatles discography. They're not the greatest Beatles songs, but like yeah, they're, they're both good songs. Free as a bird and real love. They're both good. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, to me, this is like Je- Jeff Lynn's career began. He, he started as a kid. He sort of sings about this in the, um, in the song when I was a boy on the alone in the universe album of Jeff Lynn's ELO, which is a sort of complicated thing, why it's called that. But he, he started out just loving, um, loving, Roy Orbison loving the Beatles, and then he ends his career producing for Roy Orbison and the Beatles. So really, Jeff Lynne gets all that he wanted. Even with all the bad, even anything bad that the three of us have said about any of his albums, <laughs> he's just laughing at us because he gets to like... He, he, could, sits, on, he sits on a pile of money ha- having achieved all of his dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's, he's ha- I'm sure he's very happy with his life. And to his credit, if you watch the, dis- the documentary um, Mr. Blue Sky, the story of... Uh, Jeff Lynn, he seems like a nice guy. 
he uh, never he, he never like, wanted to be a rock modest star modest guy yeah he never wanted to be a rock star he didn't want to be the guy in front and 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 uh and, you know all all that came with it he was just happy to be in the studio you know if he could if he could sell albums if, if selling albums meant he could spend more time in the studio he was all for that so that, that and that, that was his motivation by and large <laughs> Yeah, and it just seems to be good. I mean, I, I am not a producer of music myself, so I, I can't say like, oh, he really knows how to how to cut tape in the right way or whatever it is that producers do. <laughs> uh, but he just seems to be good at his good at it, and people like having him do it. So, and, that's, and he's happy doing it. The one, so the one thing I wanted to add about Lynn's production career is it's uh, it's it's a little odd that he doesn't work more often, and I don't know if that's because. Uh, his choice or, or what he, he did a lot of stuff in the late 80s early 90s it, we've all talked about that but you look at since then yeah he did he did flaming pie for mccartney did those beatles tracks and the, the two most recent things he's he's done is produce a brian adams album and a joe walsh album very late career stuff for both those guys he doesn't do a whole lot more uh producing and i'm, I'm not sure why because all those albums I'd sold very well in the late 80s and early 90s. Still hold up pretty well, too. It's not as if the production is awfully dated and you couldn't try to replicate it today in a, in a, in a similar way. So, I, I mean, that's I'm not sure if that's his choice or, or, or what. I, I suppose it is. I, I would think he'd be in high demand. You know what the funny thing is, is that in the time, as it was happening, I remember being there. This is kind of when I'm first coming into my own, uh, you know, into some consciousness musically, is that the rap on Jeff Lynne as a producer was that like, oh, yeah, you know, it's all very professional and whatnot, but there's just a smooth slickness. There's no risk taking. It's also rather boring. Um, you know, where's the excitement? Of course, keep in mind, he's producing people who are, you know, like old veterans right. of the music industry. They don't really <laughs> want anything inside like that. But the thing is, is as you said, go back and listen to Cloud Nine. Go back and listen to Full Moon Fever. I mean, I guarantee you, if you turn on the radio, you're going to hear like half of Full Moon Fever on any given three-hour run anyway. Um, those productions haven't dated a day. They still sound real good. You know, people making fun of him for being safe and tasteful fail to point out that he never really did anything tasteless, which is really important when you're talking about the 80s and the early 90s in terms mm -hmm. of production ticks. Because, man, there's a lot of stuff that, that came from that era that we loved it when it came out. But, man, we cringe when we hear it these days. So, yeah, no, you got to give him credit for making stuff that really still holds up. Flaming Pie, you know, uh, as a, a McCartney fan who really just thought, you know, after Flowers and the Dirt, there was really not a lot there. Um, Flaming Pie is that one album that I, I still come back to every now and then there are a lot of great songs on that record and they're really traditionally produced but that's exactly what mccartney wanted to give them and they hold up so yeah i i, I guess that the rap that i used to sort of un, unthinkingly accept about lynn as being boring and safe and slick has kind of turned out to be uh one of his strengths as a producer in the long run because you go back to that stuff and it's still worth hearing and yeah. there it is, our Political Beats look at ELO, Electric Light Orchestra. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Jack Butler. And we wrap things up. We come to the time of the show when all of us give you, the listener, our choices for the two albums from our artists that you really should own and the five songs from the career that you really need to hear. And we always give our guests the floor first. Jack, your choices for the, uh, the two albums and the five songs, please. Well, I hate to return to the acrimony that marked the earlier part of this of this episode, but I, I still think that 
I still maintain that El Dorado is my favorite ELO album. I'm sorry, Jeff. So, Jack, we're going to overdub all of your <laughs> vocal parts. Maybe you can get show. Jeff Lynn to do it. Yes, exactly. And we're not going to even credit you at the end of the show. All right. Until uh, Wikipedia forces us to acknowledge that you you played a role. That's right. That's right. Okay. So you can – or how about you just skip that part and go straight to – you can say that I inexplicably chose only one album for – in clear defiance of the rules of the show. So Jack Butler chose El Dorado and then his microphone mysteriously <laughs> cut off. But I, so the other album, a new world record is my other favorite. I, that, that's what I'll put as my number two. Um, so you can, you can, if you get, again, if you get Jeff Lynn in here, you can, you can find a way to make it seem like I said that that was my only, <laughs> the only album I chose as for favorite songs. I think we'll have, we'll have less acrimony here, but still some, uh, Mr. Blue Sky is number one. I'm just going to, I know people usually count down, but I, I just love that song so much. I, and I have positive associations now of it with some of the best experiences in my life because it's, it's just that kind of song. Telephone Line, we, we spoke its glories earlier. Not much more needs to be said. Uh, I'll go with, it's hard for me to pick a single song from El Dorado, not because it's this like overpowering masterpiece, but because it's best listened to as 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 just from beginning to end. But... Go with uh, Mr. Kingdom if you feel like going into El Dorado. I know Jeff doesn't, but I mean, you you can make that decision for yourself. Uh, 105.38 Overture, the the first song on the first ELO album, one of the best that they ever did. And then uh, Fire on High, the, the album opener of um, Face the Music, just great. Again, we sung its praises earlier. Not much more needs to be said, but that's my top five. I, I just, by the way, I'm going to tell you right now, I love the fact that we've been arguing with each other for the, for the whole show about the merits of, of these songs or these albums. And, and my top five songs are almost identical to yours. So that's hilarious. <laughs> Scott, you're up next. Uh, all right. So my uh, two albums uh, are back to back and uh, perhaps not a surprise from what I said earlier, but it's Face the music and a new world record uh those two i think are the, are the two elo albums you you just have to have uh song wise now i, I i'm you know we, we cut corners here sometimes i'm assuming that uh the two of you or at least uh, at least jack is going to have mr blue sky which he did and fire on high which he did so i'm going to leave those off of my five but but rest assured i love them i love them so my five that i'll i'll, I'll keep in uh i actually will echo on well two of the songs uh 105.38 overture first song first album from elo it is a template for what would come in the in the future and and they nearly nailed it on that first song it's, it's a great song uh telephone line i think one of Jeff Lidd's crowning moments as a writer, producer, singer. Great song. Uh, two more album tracks uh, I want to sell you guys on. I, I told uh, you I want to sell Jeff on Sweet Is the Night from, uh, from Out of the Blue. I think that's, that's, that's a good song on the fourth side of that album. And So Fine is also very excellent. Worth uh, an opportunity to go back and find uh, So Fine as well. And the fifth song I want to spend just a second on because we didn't earlier, and I have to. My fifth song is Living Thing. Living Thing is just great. It's great. It's always on these guilty pleasure lists, like, oh, I shouldn't like Living Thing, but I do. No, you're fine. You should love Living Thing. It's a great song. In fact, in fact, my son, who's now five, uh, we watch Wheel of Fortune, so he, he learned the alphabet from Pat Sajak. <laughs> and uh, if you don't know, there is a category on Wheel of Fortune which is Living Thing. And so at some point, I, I showed him the... Uh, I didn't show him the, the video. I just played Living Thing for him. And so every time that Wheel of Fortune now features Living Thing as a category, he and I sing, 
it's a living thing from ELO. So it's it's a nice moment. That's a great song, though. Those descending chords in the pre-chorus, the way it slides right in, into the chorus. Uh, boy, living thing is fantastic. It's got to be on my top five. And, uh, and, and check it out. Well, for my first, you know, my albums, my two albums, I guess I'm going to go with ELO 2, the album that everyone else hates, but I think it's just a Jim Dandy bomb. I love this. This, this prog rock nonsense. Give me more of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't give uh, us too much more of it. So this is really, you know, the only place you can find Jeff Lynne and Jeff Lynne alone without the influence of Roy Wood kind of going, going whole hog on the weirdness. I love yellow too i love everything about it even the failures interest me and boy if you don't like that roll over beethoven cover come on something's wrong with you so what i'm actually saying here is that something is wrong with scott yes, yes. Uh, the second album is going to be face the music and i think we all agree about this is fantastic now it's it's down to face the music or new world record and yeah well you know what my pick is is face the music i just think there's just nothing on this record that i don't like i think it's remarkable that i just think having never heard this band before really can listen to every single song on that album, find something I like about every single song, and find things that I love about every single song. Um, and that takes us, in fact, to my top five songs because I chose a number of them off that album. I skipped uh, most of the early stuff because I just think it's it's, it's very good, but I, I want you to hear ELO2 as a whole because it's like five songs and they're all lengthy. Uh, the first one is, is with a 105.38 Overture. So again, this is going to track very closely with what Jack said. That's one of my five songs. Then we're going to move ahead to face the music. I'm skipping El Dorado because it's a piece of crap. Uh, and we're going to go to face the music and Knight Rider, which is the, the hit single that e- which is Evil Woman was the hit single, but Knight Rider should have been the hit single. I think that's just an amazing song. Fire on High. We've talked about it for a long time during this show. ELO's greatest instrumental. And that's saying something because this band was really good at coming up with fantastic instrumentals. When Jeff Lynne wasn't burdened with the, you know, the, the, the problem of having to come up with a lyrical conceit or, you know, a melody to sing on top of the music that he was putting together, he, he just ran rampant. And boy, it just never sounded better than on Fire on High. Uh, the third is a telephone line which is just you know again I, I'm, a, I'm a real fan of this period of ELO for a guy who just discovered it for the first time but telephone line from a new world record is just so moving it's such a lovely song it, it, it's it's Lynn at his his kind of greatest success at being Beatlesque but not a pure 
aping and an imitation and you know a, a complete knockoff of either the Lennon-esque or the McCartney-esque style. It's Lynn's own style, and it works so well. And deployed very effectively in uh, Billy Madison. Uh, you know what? Everybody kept on saying that to me, and believe it or not, I've seen so many other Adam Sandler movies, <laughs> including Happy Gilmore, which I love, but I've never seen Billy Madison, which is why I somehow managed – one more reason why I somehow managed yeah. to keep myself insulated from ELO for all of these years. And since everyone else has mentioned Mr. Blue Sky, which is great, I will drop it and instead go with Twilight which is from time, from the 80s. Proof that in the 80s, ELO still had something relevant to say that was good. I think that's a fantastic opening number, mostly opening number from time as an album. I really love the keyboards and the synths on that record. Very modern sounding, very 80s sounding, but they're still not dated. I think it's a really great piece, and it's probably the last truly great piece that ELO did as a band. It's the Political Beats look at Electric Light Orchestra. We thank our guest for the program. He's Jack Butler, host of Ricochet's Young Americans podcast, sidekick of The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg, which, of course, you listen to right here at National Review, and also a freelance writer living in Washington, D.C. Find him on Twitter at JackButler4815. Jack, thank you so much for joining us here on Political Beats. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. I've, I've loved this. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you, man. Jeff, you can find him on Twitter at EsotericCD. A big year planned, and uh, we hope we have the skill to pull it off. Yes, I, I, I have a feeling that we will be back for more, that the year 2019 has not seen the last of Political Beats. And uh, my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. The show is there at Political underscore Beats. Reminder to subscribe to our feed for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or again, go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, share, enjoy, please leave reviews. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.